naked blonde walks into a bar with a poodle under one arm and a two-foot salami under the other. She lays the poodle on the table. Bartender says, I suppose you won't be needing a drink. Naked lady says, Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. So we're kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing, or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. What's going on, Film Effectors? With the sound of the bell, we welcome you all to Back to School Month here on the Film Effect Podcast, the weekly show that gives you the deepest of dives on a different film each episode in an effort to give it what we call the full Film Effect treatment. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is The Breakfast Club. Five strangers meeting for the first time. Look, I'm not going to discuss my private life with total strangers. Five people with a talent for trouble. What was that ruckus? Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Five lives that will never be the same. I can see you guys, my friend. I'm not wrong, am I? The Breakfast Club. Demented and sad, but social. Rated R. Starts Friday at select theaters. Check newspapers for locations. In the Breakfast Club, five high school students meet in Saturday detention and discover how they have a lot more in common than they thought. I don't get it. I just don't get how a film as simple as The Breakfast Club could ever be so perfect. I mean, it's the mid-80s and we've got this young filmmaker named John Hughes who is breaking into the scene around this time and creating these cinematic anthems for all the teens of this time. And this is just... You know, my my all-time favorite movie comes from John Hughes, so I can't really call this because this is not that movie. So I can't say that this is the best, but come on. As we're dealing with, like, I know how to word this. When we're dealing with teens in particular, because my favorite film is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which is not a teen film at all. This, however, I, I'd say that this is definitely the best of the best when it comes to teen films uh, crafted by John Hughes. Uh, where are you at on that statement? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's definitely my favorite uh, out of the bunch. I'm a huge John Hughes fan. Um, and obviously, I mean, he's iconic for uh, his teen movies. And it's funny you, you brought up Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, because that's probably my favorite of his, too. Um, and that's more of an anthem for, like, middle-aged businessmen. So it's kind of interesting much, that he kind of yeah. had both <laughs> there with Planes, Trains, and then um, all the teen movies. Uh, but, yeah, when I look at John Hughes, like... A lot of his other teen movies I like, like I, I've seen, I've enjoyed, uh, but Breakfast Club is one that, you know, I've always truly loved and, you know, cherished. Like, I, I think it it's him at his height, and it's a perfect movie. Like, I honestly, you know, a, as I was watching and thinking for this episode, um, every time I watch it, I just forget how good it is. Like, you know, I'll, I'll kind of watch it, uh, just remember, like, how excellent everything is and how on point... It, the film is as a whole and then i'll kind of forget for a couple years not watch it go back and rewatch, and then remember again so yeah it's just a 
I mean, you know, I'm looking forward to talking about it. But yeah, it's definitely my favorite of his uh, teen movies for sure. Yeah, 100%. Um, so yeah, let's dive into the film itself. First time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically that's my second time. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to... Uh, when was your first time seeing this core? I'll let you go first this time. Yeah, this is one of those that I can't nail down exactly when I first saw it. Uh, I mean, I definitely watched it on cable as a kid. Uh, you know, I don't remember what station it was on. Uh, but it was just one of those that I would see on TV here or there. And it was one for a long time where I don't even know if I watched it all the way through. Like, you know, I would just be home as, you know, like a kid or a tween or however old I was at the time in the probably mid 90s. Uh, and it would just be on, you know, one of the stations and I would kind of catch some of it. I would see, you know, like maybe towards the end of the movie or the beginning scene when they're first sitting down at detention. Um, so I saw bits and pieces, uh, but I can pinpoint one of the first times when I watched it all the way through, I actually rented it from the video store one weekend, you know, as a ritual, my mom would take us up on fr a lot of Friday nights, uh, to the video store after school. Um, and I would usually pick like maybe a movie and a video game or two movies. It's usually a new movie, old movie. So Breakfast Club was the old movie. I got it on VHS and I watched it. That was the first time I watched it all the way through. And that was, I always liked it. I always liked what I saw on TV, but that was the first time probably when I was a teenager that I was like, oh man, this is like special. Like I, you know, up until that point, like Home Alone was like my favorite John Hughes movie as like a young kid, you know, um, which obviously I know he didn't direct that, but uh, that's what I always associated him with. But then I saw, uh, you know, Breakfast Club all the way through in its entirety. And I just that just completely changed at that point until later when I started watching planes, trains and automobiles more. But, yeah, it's one of those hard ones for me to pinpoint. How about you? Yeah, I was really little when I first saw this. Um, it's probably on television or maybe even a rental from someone in the family because I remember uh, I grew up with a lot of family members that, that came and go, like my uncle and uh, my aunt crashed here. I had a cousin that stayed with us for a little while. Um, yeah, those are my weird memories when I was like really, really little, like three or four years old. And um, I remember this. Who knows? It could have been something that one of my cousins or uncles rented or probably something that was on TV. But it was definitely like in the 80s. <laughs> I mean, I have these memories go back to even before the house I'm currently in, which has been 34 years now. I have these memories go back to before moved in here. So I, I didn't, you know, I, I can't really pinpoint when that exactly was. Just I was very, very young and it was a really, really, really long time ago. So that's that. Um, yeah. Story time. Tell me a story. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit. But it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. So there's a documentary that came out 
in 2009, might have been 08, but I for some reason remember being 09. It's called Don't You Forget About Me. It's about these filmmakers that actually went out and tried to track down John Hughes because as we know, toward this was this came out obviously before his death. Um there's actually a little text at the end of the documentary because he had passed away. I think when they finished doing this or while they were filming this, but the, the plot, the point of the documentary is they went out, they went, they traveled to Chicago and everything, and they were going to actually track down John Hughes and talk to him, interview him, you know, something because he lived under a rock, you know, he didn't do anything for the later part of his career. He definitely stopped directing because Hughes passed away in 09. Um, and, his last film was in 91, I think, is when Curly Sue came out, that he directed at least. And, um, yeah, so anyway, I get back on, on point here, what the story is. So this fil- these filmmakers, there's like four or five of them. It's been a while since I've seen the actual documentary, but it's really good, and I really wanted to tell you all about it. That's why I'm talking about it now. Um, and, yeah, they just go, and they're just searching for him, and they're just talking to people. They they There's, like, a sequence when they go to, like, this Sunday spot where they, they, they their tips led them there. Apparently, you know, he didn't show up. But long story short, they never ended up meeting him. They found his house, though. But um, it's something that I go back to every now and then. I'm not sure if it's streaming or not. I think the last time I watched it, it was on Amazon. But, um, yeah. 2009 is when it came out. It's called Don't You Forget About Me. Um, and it just total coincidence that it came out around the same time that he passed away because that was not the intention. So, um, but yeah, check that out if you're able to. It's a really good documentary and I just can't recommend it enough. <laughs> Quick update the Don't You Forget About Me documentary is on YouTube. Someone uploaded it about a year ago. Just search don't you forget about me documentary it'll be the first video that pops up after you search it it's the video that's about an hour and 15 ish minutes long but yeah check it out it's a really good watch and back to the show never seen it uh yeah that sounds intriguing uh you know i as a kid like before the internet i always kind of wondered what happened to john hughes you know and i'm sure we'll get into it uh on the focus episode um but, it, you know, it was always just, like, so intriguing to me because he came in, burst in on the scene, just was banging out movies left and right, just, like, constantly. It was like a machine, just John Hughes. And then as fast as he came, he was gone from Hollywood. So it was just so interesting that you just never heard from him. He just lived privately, like, even though... You know, because right. a lot of times you'll hear directors or writers, maybe they're not working as much as they used to, but you'll still hear about them. Maybe they'll still make appearances somewhere. Not John Hughes. Like, you never heard anything about that man. Like, yeah, he stopped working, but then also you never heard anything. So, yeah, it was always intriguing to me just kind of what happened to him. And I mean, I know more now uh, than I did, you know, back probably 15 years ago or, you know, around right. his death and all that. Um but yeah, it's just so interesting how he just popped on and was gone. Yeah. Let's move on to our live top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm-hmm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. 
Nirvana smells like teen spirit off of Nevermind. Oh, no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. Let's do top five Paul Gleason films. I'm in the mood for uh, a little conversation about Mr. Paul Gleason. Um, of course, he played the vice principal Vernon. But yeah, he's always been more than a that guy to me. Just, and I, I'll have so I'll, I'm actually going to add to that um, once we get the conversation rolling uh, about the actual film. But um, yeah, underrated actor, if you ask me. So let's do top five. Uh, I have an honorable mention: Van Wilder. It's the last big thing that he did. And I remember like that he was doing a bunch of comedy spoof films that and. Uh, <laughs> not another yeah. teen movie he was in pretty much reprising the role of, as uh, Vernon but yeah um, Van Wilder honorable mention number five though Maniac Cop 3 Badge of Silence god damn it's the worst of the batch but Paul Gleason's in it and that ain't bad <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to put that on the list I, oh, I, I haven't yeah. seen I haven't seen Maniac, Maniac Cop 3 in so long. I didn't want to put it on my list. I do I, remember he was in it, but it's been a long time since I watched it. Dude, there's so many people that pop up in part three. Like fucking Robert Foster is in the movie. Um, <laughs> Jackie Earl Haley's in it. Like I'm like, what the hell? Because I watched all three of the movies on Shudder about a year or two ago. Um, so I kind of have that, you know, memory in my head still. It's, it's kind of fresh. But yeah, there's a lot of just, Random faces from like the eighties and nineties just popping up. Jackie Earl Haley, Paul Gleason, Robert Foster. I'm like, God damn. So, um, yeah, how about you? Yeah, I mean, my first honorable mention uh was the same as yours, Van Wilder. Like same here. That was I know he did other stuff after that, but that was the last movie I remember seeing him in. Uh, you know, in the early two thousands, because he passed in like twenty two thousand six. Or 2000. Six. Oh, even earlier then. Okay. Yeah, he passed away in 2006. So that was Van Water was the last thing I remember. So I had to put an honorable mention, you know, not the first thing that pops to my head when I think of him. But, uh, you know, I I wanted to mention it. Uh, my number five is a small role of his, but it was one that I saw very young and I recognized him from Breakfast Club. He actually played the Dean um, for a couple episodes uh, from Boy Meets World. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched Boy Meets World, the uh, TGIF show. I know what it is. Uh, on, I watched on ABC. I, I didn't watch it like weekly, but you know I've checked out episodes um, back yeah. when it was on. You know, if I was over like Corey Cumberland's or something, and it was on TGIF in the background, I wasn't going to be like turn that off. But yeah, I remember yeah. that. I watched that show religiously. That was. Uh, Probably my second favorite show on TGF. One of my favorite shows at the time. Uh, watched it every week. Watched every episode. I own the whole series on DVD. Um, so I love Boy Meets World. And I remember that was the first time I really recognized him. I'm like, wait a minute. I know him from um, Breakfast Club and Die Hard. Like, I know him from other movies. He's only on a couple episodes. He pro This probably wouldn't make anybody else's list. But Boy Meets World, I just loved Topanga. I loved Corey. I love Feeney, so I had to put it on there. That was one of the first times I remember recognizing him, so it definitely had to make my list. Boy Meets World number five, even though it's a very small role. All right. Number four, speaking of spoof movies, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1. Dude's in one <laughs> scene, I'm not going to lie, 
Yeah, I was kind of stretching, putting this on there. But hey, it counts. He's in it. Um, and yeah, he's pretty much making a mockery of his of himself from all these characters and roles that he played in the 80s and early 90s. Um, you know, I, I'm definitely going to get into this a little bit more about why I don't think he's a character actor in a little bit. But uh, for right now, um, I just think he's a lot more than that. So, but yeah, back to uh, number four. Little Weapon One, like I said, he's making a spoof of himself, but uh, you know he's in only he's he's in on his own joke. So I don't know where the hell I'm going with this. So moving on, what's your number four, Corey? <laughs> You're not the only one that put a spoof movie on because he he was in so many of those spoof movies. He was, um, he was. Yeah, I the first one that pops into my mind is not another teen movie. Um, you know, I'm not condoning that film. It's not a great film, but if you're a fan of teen movies, it you, there's some laughs in there. I've always appreciated it because he, you know, he came back and he reprised his role. Like literally, his character is the same name. He's wearing the, the same book. suit and everything. Yeah, so it was just funny seeing him come back. Uh, you know, the the scene was just so ridiculous that they recreated from the Breakfast Club, but I still laughed during it. I, you know, I know it's a spoof of um, obviously one of his most famous roles, but, I, you know, hey, he came back for it like he was in on the joke uh, with that as well. So I had to put not another teen movie where he reprised his role as the vice principal. So, yeah, funny times. Not another teen movie. Number three, Die Hard. It's Die Hard. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Cor? So my number three is The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, uh, an early 80s movie, uh, actually, that I saw... Probably in the past 10 years, I, I picked that one up more recently. Uh, it has Robert Duvall, uh, Trent Williams, and then obviously Paul Gleason is in a big role in the film. Uh, for anybody who don't, doesn't know about the movie, it's based off of the true story of D.B. Cooper, a man who jumped out of a plane with uh, several hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and the film is just basically a whole big pursuit uh, movie about you know everybody trying to get their piece of the 200000 and Gleason uh, plays somebody who was in the war with uh, uh, D.B. Cooper and thinks that he has a part of the money and he's basically along for the chase. So, uh, yeah, what it's one I saw more recently. I didn't see it as a kid, uh, but I really enjoyed it. And uh, Gleason was uh, great as like the kind of scummy guy trying to get his piece of the money. So, yeah, a, a pretty good movie. I don't know how many people actually have seen it or know about it. I had never really heard about it previously. It's just one that popped up one day i never heard of it either watching yeah yeah it's a it's early 80s but um it's one of the big ones i think of when i think of him two things props to you for saying db cooper and not db sweeney and two did you mean to say trent williams or treat williams treat okay i I thought i I heard trent but just wanted to make i'm like I, I know Treat Williams, but I've never heard of Trent. <laughs> <laughs> it's his lesser-known brother. Yeah, yeah Treat I Williams. I might have said Trent. I don't know. It's all good. Uh, number two, Money Talks. God damn, this is an underrated gem, in my opinion. We saw this together in theaters, didn't we? I saw it in the theaters twice. Yeah. I think it was one of those Connor situations where I went with you the second time. But yeah. I definitely saw it in, uh, more than in the theaters. It's underrated as shit. Probably the last, like, functional Charlie Sheen role, if that even makes sense. Like, the last role he did that, like, he just wasn't, I don't know, maybe a relevant, relevancy is uh, more of a relevant role was the the term I should have used, but 
after that, it was just downhill. I mean, yeah, sure, two and a half men. That's TV. I'm talking about movies. Like, everything he did after Money Talks was just schlock, you know? Scary movie cameos don't fucking count. I'm talking about real meaty roles like this. It's him, Chris Tucker, Paul Gleason, and um, uh, da, da, Daniel Roebuck is his partner, the two cops. It's a good movie. Uh, I don't care. Oh, and previous uh, friend of the show, Larry Hankin, has a role in the film, too. Yeah, I was going to say Hankin's in there. Yeah, Hankin. So, yeah, that's definitely my number two. Uh, I, I even have it above Die Hard because of the fact that it's Paul Gleason top five, and Gleason has a lot more to do in this film than he does in Die Hard, so. Yeah, I, that probably would have made my list if I had seen it more recently. It had just been so long since I've seen that movie. I remember liking it yeah, back it was, in the day. It was on Netflix. Um, it wasn't recent by any means. It's probably like three or four years ago I watched it last. It was on Netflix, though. Yeah, I know he was in it. I just honestly couldn't think about it. It's been so long since I've seen it, but I remember liking it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they shot. Anyway, they my- shot the finale at the the Coliseum in L.A. and shit, and had that guy at the rocket launcher who was eating a lollipop and shit. I don't know. Just, I'm just going <laughs> off on random memories of the movie. Hey, I, I just know Brett Ratner gets a bad rap, but I mean, he does have. Oh a couple shit! Fun that movies. was Brett Ratner, wasn't it? Yeah. I forgot that I was him directing that movie. Shit. Yeah, I yeah, mean, he, his earlier career, his earlier career, a lot better than his later career, obviously. So, that's all. Yeah. My number two, how about you? Uh, my number two, I th- I feel like it's pretty obvious it would be on a lot of people's list, and uh, that's Die Hard, Dwayne from Die Hard. Uh, you know, it's one of the first times I remember seeing him. I mean, who doesn't remember the uh, two agents <laughs> that come in and Die Hard? And then uh, hearing uh, McLean say Dwayne, like <laughs> it's just like who doesn't remember that part? Like when he gets like when he just fucks up and sends the SWAT team in at the wrong time and looks like a fool. Uh, so yeah, that's obviously Die Hard is uh, one of his most iconic roles uh, as uh, Agent Dwayne. So I guess we can just both say number one, Breakfast Club. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. That's that's what he's known for. I mean, he just brings so much intensity and just so much like you can just tell he just has so much resentment towards the children in this film. Like Gleason yeah. is so excellent. Like he does such a great job of uh portraying the role and fitting into that just uh adult who just doesn't understand and just doesn't really care anymore about kids, you know? Exactly. Lot to say, so let's dive into it. Here we go! Alright, so first and foremost, let's get some trivia bits out of the way. Uh, So John Hughes wrote the screenplay to this in just two days. Between, uh... July 4th and July 5th of 82 is when he wrote it. Uh, the film was also shot in sequence. John Bender, played by Judd Nelson, stayed in character. Well, I'm sorry, Judd Nelson as John Bender. Stayed in character <laughs> off camera. Apparently he was bullying Molly Ringwald so bad that Hughes wanted to fire him. But it was Paul Gleason, who we just talked about, who stepped up and defended him, saying that he's a good actor. And he had to explain to him that he's in character. I, I read that in a couple sources, so I tend to believe it. The library itself 
not an actual library. It was on set. They actually filmed this at Maine North High School, and they constructed this in the uh, gymnasium because it was big enough. Can you believe that? I just found this out over the last five, six years, I want to say, that that was not an actual library, but in fact, a set. <laughs> filmed in a high school, but not they didn't use the high school's library, obviously. I knew it was always filmed on location. Yeah, I guess that does surprise me, but then on the other side, it's such a nice library, I guess... It makes sense because, I mean, it is like one of the nicest like library. Like it honestly looks like what you would think of at like an expensive college or boarding school or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, so I guess it makes sense that they built it. Ali Sheedy plays Allison. Apparently she nicknamed Anthony Michael Hall Milk and Cookies because she thought that he was sweet. He didn't like the nickname. So apparently he was also dating Molly Ringwald when they were filming this um didn't last long together but I, I would assume they met and hit it off on the set of 16 candles and came on over to this movie dating but again i don't think they actually survived the actual filming of this movie together um in 2010 molly ringwald and anthony michael hall speak of the devil told vanity fair magazine that john hughes was receptive to actors and actresses improvisations some of them, including Brian's reason for having a fake ID so I can vote, made it into the final film. Uh, because of that, Judd Nelson made up many of the terms in the film that he used, including neo-Nazi Zoom Dweeby. <laughs> I always like that one. <laughs> Speaking of Bender, John Cusack was the one who actually was very close to portraying him. He auditioned many times, even went as far as to traveling between Chicago and L.A. Uh, a bunch of times before being cast. However, Hughes went in a different direction at the last minute and dropped Cusack in favor of Judd Nelson, which was heavily influenced by the casting director. I've always wondered what kind of breakfast club this would be if John Cusack was Bender. Do you think it would be too much of a nice guy and doesn't really have the edge that perhaps Judd Nelson has? Like, what is your take? Where, what do you where do you see a John Cusack? Uh, John Bender version of Breakfast Club. Yeah, I don't... Cusack never came across as tough to me. No. So that's the only thing, like, Judd Nelson does a good job, like, you feel like this kid's tough and scrappy in this movie, and I don't know if Cusack could pull that off. I know he could probably be, like, a jerk and a smart aleck, and I think that aspect of the character would be fine. But, yeah, as far as, like, the toughness, like, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure Cusack could... Um, pull it off in some fashion. I'm sure it's it would have been a good performance. Uh, but yeah, I don't think it would be the same. I just think Judd Nelson just brings that toughness a little bit more. Uh, but that's just my opinion. You know, I, I could be wrong. Here's the thing. Cusack was in Say Anything. Love Say Anything. Talked about just recently on the show. Lloyd Dobler, iconic character. One of the best. Cameron Crowe, love it to death. Anyway, in that film, his character is supposed to be into uh, kickboxing, sport of the future. But I never in my life, as many times as I've seen say anything, have once believed that he is, you know, like a legit kickboxing guy. Like, I've never bought into that whole kickboxing part of his character and say anything. So. It's possible. I don't. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, I, it's hard for me to envision him playing Bender. 
like I said before, I don't think he has the edge that Judd Nelson has. And um, it just would have been a little bit different. I don't think it would have taken from the movie. It definitely wouldn't have given anything to it. But I don't think it would have taken anything from it. So it still would have been the uh, fucking perfect film with or without uh, Cusack as Bender. So that's just my two cents. Take it or leave it. Anthony Michael Hall was uh, in the middle of a growth spurt during production. According to Nelson, Hall was shorter than him during the start of production, but then at the end, he was taller than him. John Capellos jokingly warned the young actors to not overdo their intensity, laughingly noted that Martin Sheen once suffered a heart attack while filming Apocalypse Now. It's a true story. Look it up. Here's the thing, though. Who plays Andrew? Emilio Estevez. Who's Emilio Estevez? Well, that's Martin Sheen's son, who was pissed off <laughs> by the remark. And Capellas did he not know that <laughs> that he was Capellas his son? was then stunned to learn that he was his father. While Estevez accepted his apology <laughs> and and all that filming was unaffected, uh, Capellas said years later that he still felt terrible about what he said, even though that he didn't have any idea about the connection between Sheen and Estevez and had offended Estevez completely inadvertently. When Capellas guest starred on The West Wing back in 99, he told Martin Sheen this story. Sheen thought it was very funny, which provided Capellas a small amount of relief from the jargon that he had felt about the incident since it happened. How do you not know that, though? I feel like there's just certain bloodlines you should fucking know, especially when you're in Hollywood. That's one of them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I've always known that. It's not like... Something I found out later that Emilio Estevez was uh, Martin Sheen's son. I mean, I know the names are different, but I think everybody kind of, I thought that was common knowledge. Apparently not. So the ages of everyone, just in case listeners are curious, when they were, this is their ages while they were filming. Keep in mind, they're all in high school. Judd Nelson was 25. Molly Ringwald was the only legitimate aged one. She was 16, although her 17th birthday was three days after the film's release. Doesn't really matter because they filmed this a whole year before the film even came out. So what's that tell you? Emilio Estevez was 23. Anthony Michael Hall was also 16. And Ali Sheedy was 23. As an end of filming present, Hughes gave everyone uh, a piece of the library's banister. Uh, and finally, it was originally suggested that there would be several sequels to this movie, occurring every 10 years in which The Breakfast Club would be back together. This did not come to pass due to the uh, volatile relationship between John Hughes and John Judd Nelson. Hughes stated that he would never work with Nelson again. Uh, also, it was unclear whether or not Hughes still felt ill will, uh, ill will whether I'm sorry, ill will against his off-cast starlet, Molly Ringwald. Apparently, these two had a whole tiff after filming of this movie. That's why she never worked with them again. Because they had like a bad falling out that never really came to fruition until like decades later. Because I had never heard of this little disagreement or whatever you want to call it. Maybe I'm putting a Molly by calling it that. But I, I had found out about this, about, maybe it was about 10 years ago or so, that apparently her and him just did not get along and something happened and they had a falling out. Um, and it had something to do with like her wanting to move on from teen films. And, you know, John Hughes is like, but I need you on my new teen movie, you know? 
that wasn't happening. Because, yeah, she did Pretty in Pink after this, but she was the one who wrote that. He didn't direct it. I, di- I didn't know that either. I knew Judd Nelson. I knew, like, it's pretty famously, like, <laughs> used to not like Judd Nelson at all. But, yeah, I didn't know that, that him and Ringwall had a fallen out. I assume they were always kind of chummy. Yeah. <clears throat> Apparently not. So that would have been a good movie, though. I would have. I would have been really interested to see like a ten-year or fifteen-year reunion or something like that. That would have been interesting. It's a shame that. Well, didn't they happen. had somewhat of a reunion at the 2005 VMAs. I remember seeing that on MTV though when it happened. Um, Molly was there. Uh, John wasn't there. Molly was there. I believe Amelia was there. Anthony was there. I think it was just Ali Sheedy and uh, John who weren't there. I think. I think it was three or four of them. I can't remember. Damn. But yeah, look that up. I'm, I'm sure it's on YouTube. But yeah. All right, so the film kicks off with Don't You Forget About Me, uh, followed by the following text from David Bowie. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. So the David Bowie quote, of course, this is pulled from changes. Ali Sheedy uh, is the one who suggested the uh, quote to uh, John Hughes. He liked it and thus included it in the opening. So, if you're ever curious where that came from, Ali Sheedy's a big David Bowie fan. So we got the uh, day and date, Saturday, March 24th, 1984. Five students at Shermer High School report at 7 a.m. for an all-day detention affair. Got Brian Johnson, a brain, Andrew Clark, an athlete, Allison Reynolds, a basket case, Clara Standish, a princess, and John Bender, a criminal. Voice over from Brian as he reads the essay about who they think they are. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's what they're being assigned to. It's the essay that we're going to hear at the end of the movie. So, at the beginning of the film, we see different shots of the school hallways and classrooms. You can see what the flare gun did to Brian, his locker, in this uh, opening scene. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Um, and there's... Yeah, I didn't put two and two together until I was older, but yeah, that is yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, that's a little interesting little nugget. Also, there's a picture of a former Shermer High School student, Man of the Year. The guy in the picture is the janitor, Carl Reed, played John, played by John uh, Capellos. So we get Claire being dropped off first in her daddy's BMW. She can't believe her dad couldn't <laughs> get her out of it because, you know, that's what rich people do apparently back in the 80s and he tells her that he'll make it up to her before she heads into the school so first off that beamer belonged to hughes and second this is some fucking entitlement right here god damn oh yeah that that i always uh really enjoyed the opening scene here uh when they're getting dropped off just because this is the only interaction you get with the kids and their parents so yeah. uh you know it's always intriguing because that's such the big theme of the movie um and I just love the fact that, yeah, it's such entitlement and each car represents the kid so well. So, like, obviously the princess is getting dropped off in her BMW. Um, yeah, we're getting them classes fucking fixed out there or put out there. Yeah, you got um, you got uh, Brian the nerd, like, getting dropped off in the station wagon, you know, the staple of the 80s, like, every man house. Then you got um, Bender walking because like his family doesn't give a shit about him, you know, like it. And then uh, Andrew getting dropped off by his dad, like, you know, 
pissed off at him and wants him to be the best wrestler getting dropped off by his rugged Bronco. Um, and then Ali Sheedy gets <laughs> dropped off by like this weird car. I don't even know what kind of car it is, but it's just like this weird looking car from the seventies, like totally something you would see a basket case come out of. So it's interesting. If you look at all right. the vehicles, they get dropped off in they are all spot on to what you would think. And Bender just walks. Yeah. Bender just walks. Yep. <laughs> Bender has no car. He got, he's got no one to drop him off. He's just walking in. Um, and yeah. Uh, also, Brian, his mom and sister in the car. That's his real mother and sister in real life. Uh, Mercedes Hall is his mother, and then his sister, Mary Christian. So that's pretty interesting. Huh. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, Andrew's father ridicules him about being a goofball, screwing around, he says, and getting caught. And, yeah, he talks about how this can screw around with his competition. So Hughes originally wrote Andy... Uh, as a football player, but decided that teen films had too many of those. So he made it a little more interesting and, and made him a wrestler. So I like that too. It's a little cliche, the whole football thing. So finally, Allison's parents nearly run Bender over as he's crossing the street to enter the school before she exits the car herself. And then we cut to Vice Principal Vernon welcoming the group to the Saturday detention, and he assigns them all to a strict thousand word essay about why they're in detention and how they can better themselves blah 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 so his back and forth with bender starts immediately with his barry manilow raiding his closet comment well well here we are i want to congratulate you for being on time excuse me sir i think there's been a mistake i know it's detention but um i don't think i belong in here it is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here. To ponder the error of your ways. And you may not talk. You will not move from these seats. And you will not sleep. All right, people, we're going to try something a little different today. We are going to write an essay of no less than a thousand words describing to me who you think you are. This is a test? And when I say essay, I mean essay. I do not mean a single word repeated a thousand times. Is that clear, Mr. Bender? Crystal. Good. Maybe you'll learn a little something about yourself. Maybe you'll even decide whether or not you care to return. Uh, you know, I can answer that right now, sir. You know, that'd be no, no for me, because... Sit down, Johnson. Thank you, sir. My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business is ill-advised. Any questions? Yeah, I got a question. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? I'll give you the answer to that question, Mr. Bender, next Saturday. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. And by the way, Judd Nelson's clothes in the film were the, uh, it's the exact same ones that he wore in his audition. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, Vernon's based on a wrestling coach from Hughes High School who flunked him in gym. Hughes ran into him later, and the coach said that the film was good, but the teacher was still a real jerk. <laughs> So, 
So everyone's getting settled in. And Allison loudly bites her fingernails. You got Brian being loud as he's getting comfortable. Bender then shifts his attention to Claire and Andrew and suggests that Brian close the door so they can get the prom queen impregnated. Mm. <laughs> he and Andrew go back and forth with Claire interjecting from time to time. He asks if their boyfriend girlfriend keeps pressing the topic until she suddenly tells him to go to hell. So, all right. This interaction here between Bender and Claire. So, keep in mind, she's 16, he's 25 in real life. I don't know if I feel comfortable saying some of the shit that he says. Yeah. Because it's a lot, it's a lot of, um, of its time dialogue, shall we say. Definitely stuff that would not fly in today's society. No, stuff you wouldn't hear. And it, yeah, knowing the ages, I mean, you can just look and tell that he's older, like Judd Nelson. Like, I didn't know the exact age, um, I always knew he was the oldest. Like, you can just... And, you know, I'm not saying anything bad on that. Like, there was always kids in in my school and your school that looked older than they actually were. You know, so, like, I, I, I don't, like, think it necessarily stands out in the movie. Like, I think they all look pretty age-appropriate. Like, when I'm watching this movie, I'm not like, why is there, like, 30-something? This is, it's not like 90210 or anything like that. Where I'm watching it and I'm like, I don't buy these kids are in high school. Uh, you know, it's still believable enough to me that uh, Nelson would be in high school. But yeah, just knowing his age from behind the scenes, it does make it a little bit uncomfortable what he's saying. And uh, just one interesting thing here when all the kids sit down. So like, you know, everybody else sits at a separate table except for Andrew and Claire. And, you know, it's obvious why, because they're in like kind of the same social circles They're the two popular ones right. the two in that's, ones. that's a good note so they sit next to each other uh so yeah just a little interesting tab there because they're all the other kind of outcasts the nerd the uh bully and the basket case all sit separately you know so just an mm-hmm. interesting thing yeah it is um i was gonna say something shit what was it um fuck it doesn't matter bender keeps wanting to close the library doors so Vernon can't hear anything that they're up to. And he's just fighting with Claire about academic and social clubs. Brian gets involved, causes Bender to focus on making fun of him. Um, so Bender apparently, Bender, John, shit, Judd, Judd Nelson. I knew I'd get it out. He went undercover. Uh, he kind of pulled all Drew Barrymore and never been kissed and went to a local high school outside Chicago where uh, the film was shooting, and apparently he convinced some teenagers that he was a legitimate, legitimate t- uh, that he was a legitimate student. Ah. After buying some beer for them with his fake ID, he was 24 at the time this happened. Nelson told him to drop it off at the hotel where the actors were staying. Years later, reflecting on this uh, antic, reflecting on his antics, Nelson said they would ask me why I was staying there. And I told them my dad was in jail. I'm staying at the Western O'Hare while my dad's incarcerated, is what he said. Uh-huh. Um, so this is kind of a thing that happened a lot more and more. It doesn't happen today. Like it's kind of like it's not method acting. It's kind of like, well, it kind of is a lot like method acting because you're getting in character by being the character. And I, I feel like we saw a lot more of that around this time in movies, like the '80s and '90s. Uh, it's just something I don't really hear about 
too often. I'm not saying it doesn't happen now. I'm just saying like I don't hear about it happening more or, or, or pretty much at all nowadays. You? Yeah. Or am I just thinking differently? No, not really. I mean, I think it's more of a dying art. I mean, there's definitely still actors out there that, you know, like to use the method and get really into what they're doing. But I think in general, yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's still research and things involved, but I don't know if it has to do with the internet. Like there's just so much more information you can find online nowadays and through social media. Uh, you don't necessarily need to go to a school. You could maybe just go online. I don't know if that affects it or not, but uh, you know, we're in the digital age now. So yeah, I, I, I feel the same. I don't think a lot of actors uh, would do that now, like kind of ingratiate themselves into a high school uh, to get into that frame of mind, frame of mind. Blah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like when it does happen nowadays, it's weird or it, or it's kind of frowned upon or something. Because I feel like it's something that you'd hear like Shia LaBeouf do, you know, for one of his roles. And maybe it's just the person itself or maybe not the art. It's just the... Depends on who it is. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. So, Andrew Bender... They get into a borderline homophobic argument about the wrestling club, since that's what he's into. Um, more on this stuff later on. Uh, got a got a category just for it. Bender takes it upon himself to close the door, keep it closed when Vernon comes in, and demands to know who closed it. I love this quote here. <laughs> Screws fall out all the time. The world's in a perfect place. It's like one of my favorite quotes in this movie. <laughs> um, he tries to get Andrew to help him keep the door open with a large bookshelf that's blocking the exit in case of emergency. He then blames it on Andrew, telling him he expected more from a high school varsity <laughs> captain. I love that like, shit. What are you like, thinking at about? First, he's like, help me. <laughs> and then Bender says something, and he's like, you're right. Yeah, you should have known better. Um, yeah, Vernon's got Bender for the rest of his natural born life, apparently, because he's holding to eat his shorts. The next screw that falls out is going to be you. Eat my shorts. What was that? Eat my shorts. You just bought yourself another Saturday, mister. Oh, I'm crushed. You just bought one more right there. Well, I'm free the Saturday after that. Beyond that, I'm going to have to check my calendar. Good, because it's going to be filled. We'll keep going. You want another one? Say the word. Just say the word. Instead of going to prison, you'll come here. Are you through? No, I'm doing society a favor. So? That's another one right now. I've got you for the rest of your natural born life if you don't watch your step. You want another one? Yes. You got it. You got another one right there. That's another one, pal. Cut it out. You through? Not even close, bud. Good. You got one more right there. You really think I give a shit? Another. You through? How many is that? That's seven, including the one when we first came in. You asked Mr. Vernon here whether Barry Mandelon knew that he raided his closet. Now it's eight. You stay out of it. Excuse me, sir. It's seven. Shut up, Pee Wee. Where are you at on eating my shorts as an insult? Uh, I mean, I guess back in the 80s, it was more edgy. I don't know. <laughs> I never got that. Like, Bart Simpson said it on a Simpsons cartoon, right? Is that where it came from, essentially, in pop culture? No, I mean, well, Simpsons pop- came after this, so this came out, like, I think even before Simpsons were on the Almond show. Yeah, you're right. Actually, I came out. That was in 87. This is 85. I didn't think about that. 
I don't know. I just feel like that, that really popularized it. Like that, everyone was saying stupid shit like that. Like a lot of them fucking shows were doing that in the eighties and nineties. Like another one that comes to mind: Dinosaurs, not the mama, yeah, not the baby. What the hell does he say? Not the baby, not, not the, the mama. mama. And then you know, obviously you have the mo- probably the most famous one, Urkel. Did I do that? Did I do that? Yeah. It, that's how it was. You had the catchphrases back then. So I guess Eat My Shorts was kind of like a Bender's catchphrase, even though it's not really like nobody really quotes this movie and says, Eat My Shorts. You know, it's usually other quotes, <laughs> but yeah, that that's what they were probably going for. Can you imagine telling someone to eat your shorts today? <laughs> I'd probably be it, like, Why are they like, like, what the fuck? Are they made of soy or something? <laughs> that's probably what somebody would think. Like, are oh, they organic and made of soy? Okay. Good for the environment. <laughs> Oh shit! So yeah, um, he's got Bender by the balls for the next two months. So when Vernon leaves the room, Bender screams "fuck you" in this weird way. It's a lot of back and forth. We got a lot of Bender versus, or uh, yeah, Vernon versus Bender, Bender versus Andrew, Andrew versus whoever Claire. It's like Bender versus everyone so far in this movie, um. Then we got the part, nah, no, we got a montage, that's right, this is the boredom montage with Allison making dandruff fart, Andrew playing with his drawstrings, and eventually everyone falls asleep until <laughs> Vernon wakes them up for a 10 o'clock bathroom break. Yeah, and real quick, I just want to say, like, you were saying how everybody's against Bender, which is true, like, you know, all the kids, and then obviously Bender and um, Vice Principal have, uh, you know, their history, because obviously he's there in detention all the time. But I, I I will just say there is one time when they all work together and that's when like Bender's taking the screw out of the door like they cover for him like all the other kids. So it's just interesting like they're all kind of against him. But right there in that instance, um, you know, when Werner's trying to figure out what happened with the screw and the door, they all cover for Bender. So it's just funny like it, the kids are all kind of arguing. But then when it comes to like them against an adult, they they kind of stick together. You know, so that's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, even though they don't get along and don't like each other, they'll stick together because they don't want to rat anybody out to uh, Werner or the adult. You know, I don't know if you noticed that, but they stick together for that part. The screw. No, I honestly haven't noticed that. You're right. Uh, maybe it's because they feel that they need him for something like he's got the screw. So maybe it'll just be out of sight, out of mind if we just, you know, turn a blind eye or something. Who knows? Uh, you're bringing up a valid point, though. I never thought about it, though. So the teens are bored. So they find them. Oh, I talked about that already. No, no, I, did, I didn't. They find themselves. They're, they're bored. So they find things to do to occupy themselves. Bender's ripping books apart. Low-key impressing Claire at times. Andrew tries to get Claire to go out with them next weekend, but she declines because of her parents. Uh, and then before you know it, it's lunch. And... I'm kind of going to go over what people ate, kind of like how you, you know, pointed out. And this this actually gives a callback to what you pointed out in the cars. Uh, what they're eating says a lot about who they are. You know, Claire has the sushi, of course. Brian and Andrew have just their normal everyday lunch in a paper bag. Of course, Bender has nothing, so he takes from Brian. And then there's Allison. Allison, of course, makes the sandwich that's full of pixie sticks and Captain Crunch. So that apparently was Ali Sheedy's idea um, to give it an extra crunch sound to have Captain Crunch cereal in the sandwich. 
and according to Molly Ringwald, Claire was originally scripted as having pasta salad for lunch, but then it was Ali Sheedy, who I feel like is suggesting a lot of stuff in this movie, suggested to John Hughes that Claire eat sushi, which was generally considered a luxury food during the mid-80s in America. Yeah. Which it was, and it still is today. Yeah, it still maybe, is now. Maybe not as high. No, because, I mean, uh, nowadays you can get it at a gas station or a grocery store. I don't think you could back in the 80s. Uh, it's definitely, no. like, on the higher end, especially, like, on the West Coast. But, um, yeah, it, it definitely is. Like, when you hear someone's like, oh, I... Uh, I'm going out to sushi. It's, you know, usually it's like, oh, yeah, that's expensive. That's higher end stuff. So it makes sense. Yep. And then this is where uh, the, the the conversation about their family starts and things get interesting. This movie starts to really pick up around this part because, of course, this is when Bender gives his tragic story about his old man, his, fa- his, 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 his family home, his broken home, we should say. Uh, you know, getting cigarettes put out on him, and you know his father just being a tough guy and using him as an a just an overall physical and emotional punching bag. And you learn a lot about Bender now. Yeah, it's a it's a tad bit cliche nowadays, but in '85, like this shit was serious, and like it it was kind of a game changer for the movie because, like I said things really pick up now and it's because of Bender and his unfortunate story and her unfortunate upbringing that really, um, I don't want to say redeems him, uh, but it definitely makes him somewhat of a character to keep an eye on yeah, for he's the rest relatable. of the film. You know, you understand yes, why he is yes. what he is. You know, you would be angry and cold and mean to everybody if that's all that you got at home. You know, if if your dad yeah. beat up on you every day and didn't take care of you. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's really done well. And, and you said it, it is cliche by today's standards. But, you know, you got to remember this is the mid 80s. You didn't have the same focus on bullying like you do today. Uh, you don't have the same focus. Uh, you know, it deals a little bit with the flare gun later, you know, with school shootings. Like none of that stuff was really brought up in movies like, yeah, you had PSAs and. TV specials and stuff like that back then uh, that maybe right. glossed over certain things, but uh, you didn't see it in mainstream movies like this. It just wasn't a thing. So uh, seeing this as a kid, I mean, I, it really stood out. Yeah, you know, most teen comedies, it was just you know the nerd trying to get with the popular girl and laughs. Like whereas this movie, and that's why I've always appreciated, delves into things that you know are important to kids and kids actually go through. And actually deals with real problems, you know, obviously in a stylized, entertaining way, but it, it's real problems and it feels like real uh, dialogue. You know, it feels like something I could see a kid at my school telling me, you know, in a situation. It, it, I think it's done really well. I agree. So then they head out to the halls so Bender can score some dope from out of his locker they attempt to get back to the library while avoiding Vernon, set to Wang Chung's Fire in the Twilight, which I fucking love. This song is a fucking banger. I listen to it all the time. Um, true story, I do. But after Andrew's route, ah, after Andrew's route backfires, Bender sacrifices himself as a distraction, and he goes into the gym and starts playing basketball very loudly, so, ben, so Vernon comes in, and he's like yelling, and he's like, think I'm going to try out for a scholarship. <laughs> I love that <laughs> line, too. Yeah. Shit! Great idea, Jagger. Huh? Fuck you! Fuck you! Why'd you listen to John? We're dead. 
Just me. What do you mean? Get back to the library. Keep your gloomy on. So this is when shit really turns up between him and Vernon because he locks John in a fucking storage closet as punishment, but not before ridiculing him. And, you know, he says the famous, he makes $31,000 a year and has a home. (laughs) He's a man of respect around here. People like him. They think he's a swell guy. And then he bizarrely challenges Bender to a fight, which kind of scares him and kind of scares me as a viewer, too. It's like, whoa, now we're challenging physical fights and shit? Like, Bender's flinch when Vernon takes a punch, or fakes a punch, rather, was genuine. Like, he thought that Gleason was going to hit him, Judd Nelson. Yeah, it's a really intense scene. Uh, You know, I knew it was intense even as a young kid because you can see Bender. Like, Bender's not afraid of him physically, Bender just knows no. what will happen if they get into a fight. Because obviously, um, what it, Werner says is true. Like, no one's going to believe Bender. Like, no one's going to believe that he was provoked and, you know, this was all started by the assistant principal. No one's going to buy that. Everyone's going to buy Werner's story and then Bender's going to get expelled or put in jail or, you know, whatever would happen. So you can see, like, he's not scared physically as much, I don't think. I mean, I'm sure he is a little bit, but... It's more of just the consequences. You can see uh, Bender just knows it's like he can't do anything. Like he's just kind of stuck here getting intimidated. And, you know, the, the other part of the scene is interesting to me is like the way Werner sees himself like I'm the shit. Like everybody loves me. I'm a great guy. Whereas probably all the kids in the school probably hate him. And then I'm sure a lot of the adults like you even get it with the janitor in the film. They kind of like kind of snicker behind his back because he thinks he's this great vice principal making 31,000 a year with a house and he's got it all and he's a swell guy but secretly probably a lot of people are behind his back like man that guy's got a stick up his ass or you know he's a jerk <laughs> you know that that's just how it is some people are like that they just see themselves as a great thing and I'm not saying the guy doesn't have any friends or nobody likes him or anything but I just think his view on himself is much, much higher than probably a lot of people would feel about him. So it's just kind of interesting there hearing that. How many fights do you think John Bender has been in? Oh, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot. Cause you know, a, you think he, you think he's not all talk. You think he actually got into all these fights and he's the actual like legit tough guy. He claims to uh, be. I don't think he's as tough as he says, but I mean, I think he probably like okay. an example of, uh, you know, at lunch when he takes, some of Ryan's lunch, I think he does that kind of stuff, like to people that he knows really aren't going to fight back too much. 
you know, he might kind of uh, intimidate and beat up because that's how most bullies are. They kind of intimidate and beat up on the people that aren't going to really defend themselves or can't really defend themselves. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think he's nearly as tough as he thinks he is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. I just I've always had this like weird feeling whenever I watch it and I think about that, that he's kind of for shit. Like he's low key borderline for shit and isn't the like legit tough guy. But then there's always that family aspect that I always fall back on. And I'm like, well, maybe he is, though, because, you know, he's got that hard life. Or maybe he isn't because maybe he just always has been, you know, a person hiding from himself and, and on the inside and out. I don't know. I don't, I don't mean to get things all fucking psychological and shit. So, um, I don't know. Maybe going back to the question I initially proposed, I think maybe... I'm thinking John Bender's been in about seven, six or seven fights in high school at Shermer High. You think that's a good number, or what do you think? You think it's higher or lower than six, seven? Uh, it's probably about right. Yeah, like as far as like major fights where like people are fighting. Yeah, I could see that. All right, right on. Um, so where are we at here? Yeah, okay. Yeah, eventually he escapes while Vernon's taking a shit and returns to the library by crawling through the ceiling panels while telling this joke that we need to talk about because this joke's unfinished, okay? A naked blonde walks into the bar. I'll just play the audio of it. So the joke that Bender tells is... He never finishes it. It's actually got no punchline originally, um, or according to Judd Nelson. He outlived the line. He just went through it. He said, fuck it, and just started telling this bullshit story or joke, knowing what was going to happen and knowing there was going to be no punchline, and that was his intention. He just was supposed to come back and tell a joke that would end with him coming back into the library and saying, I forgot my pencil. But no one could come up with a punchline for the joke. <laughs> so they had no connection. I don't know. I guess that I guess whatever he was going with was supposed to end with forgot my pencil. But it, it doesn't because well maybe it does. I don't know. Cause it ends with him saying naked lady says and then he falls through. Maybe the naked lady says I forgot my pencil. Yeah, I'm not sure. I never really put that much thought into it. it. Makes well, it doesn't make sense. So don't don't think too hard about it. So the others aid John in his escape and cover for him when Vernon comes in to investigate the noise. You were talking about this earlier. Could you just could you explain the ruckus, sir? Um, although I have to point out that this scene does include a very rather uncomfortable panty shot with Bender under the desk because he's like if he's looking in between of uh, Claire's legs and clearly it's not Molly Ringwald it's obviously a body double sitting there but it's just just completely nonsensical like this does not need to be in this movie I know it's quick and harmless but like I've just always been not weirded out by it just I don't know like it's it's always felt that it just never didn't need to be in this movie, you know? Yeah. It was just pointless. It's a pointless panty shot is all it is. Yeah, I don't I don't get it either. I mean, you get the idea just by seeing Bender, like, on a side shot, Bender st- sitting there. Like, you get the idea. He's looking up her skirt. Like, <laughs> it's not rocket science right there. Right. Like, 1,000%, this shit would never happen today. Oh, yeah. So, because 
regardless of the fact that the actual actress is being is 16 the character i'm sure is 16 as well it's just it's just no no one wants to see that get the fuck out so they take bender's doobage and one by one head back to smoke up the we get the famous blaze scene <laughs> the chicks cannot hold their smoke which is from a richard Pryor uh, routine by the way in case you, anyone was wondering suddenly andrew comes from just bursting out of this room full of smoke and performs this like pumped up number and then just goes back in yells window shatters cut <laughs> chicks cannot hold this smoke that's what it is <laughs> do you know how popular i am i'm so popular everybody loves me so much at this store poor baby I know. I, I, Hughes regrets this. Apparently, he regrets the breaking glass effect. Well, which I never. I don't know. I never understood if like he's imagining that, like he's high and he's just seeing it, like kind of, you know, like the kids are kind of imagining it, or if it actually happened. I'm assuming it actually happened, but it is kind of odd. I don't. It is slightly out of place. It doesn't bother me. Like I've never watched it and said, "Oh, that's weird." But I, I can see what Hughes is saying right there. And I just want to say, too, when they're smoking up, I love Anthony Michael Hall's, like, voice. He does it in Weird Science, too, when he's, like, hanging out, when they're hanging out <laughs> at the bar. Yes. <laughs> I love that voice when he's, like, trying to be, like, this black guy, pretty much, in the bar of Weird Science. Uh, I love that voice he does, Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah. Let's, um, I really want to talk about this fucking effect that's been going on for God knows how long that... Marijuana, THC, however you want to label it, does this weird effect on people that makes them do these fucking bizarre things that none of this stuff happens in real life. Maybe if you're like a first time smoker, I can understand because that's a little bit different than, you know, I'm 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 a smoker. I admit it. I talk about it all the time. I'm very open about it and never you may be like the first you know, handful of times I smoked with friends in high school. Maybe we did some dumb shit. I don't know. But 
and and yeah, I understand people are like, well, these guys are, are playing high schoolers. What makes them any different? Yeah, I understand that, but I'm not talking about just this. I'm talking about in general. I'm talking about this just this Hollywood idea that marijuana makes you like fucking do stupid shit and act just completely mindless. Like, no, that's yeah, not the effect. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't know. I I know you don't smoke, but I don't know how long it's been. I don't know if you remember how it felt or not yeah i mean but yeah it's definitely not it's 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 like it's basically what alcohol should be doing to these people or whatever you know yeah i mean when i was 14 and 15 first getting into that that's i acted silly but also it was just me acting a little bit like you know weed doesn't really make you do that it's just when you're young and you're first trying it out you want to feel silly, like you want to act crazy, kind of. You know, you're a young teenager doing that shit. So it, it makes sense. And I, I think it makes sense the way they act. I mean, like, you know, do I buy that Brian or Anthony Michael Hall's character is really smoked a lot before? Probably not. Probably the same with Andrew. Like, you know, he's like this jock. Like, maybe he smoked up a little bit. You know, as far as, like, Bender and uh, Claire, like, yeah, maybe, obviously, Bender more, you know. So I'm sure they all, I'm sure a couple of them have experience with it, but it doesn't bother me if they act silly. Uh, but yeah, it is true. Like definitely, especially back in the eighties and nineties, uh, you would, and before that too, you would get the, you know, where people would smoke up and they would act like they're like on this crazy, like trippy, like they're on acid or LST or something it's, like it's, that. It's like they fucking like chased a bump of yayo with like a shot of whiskey or something yeah. and then they're like just out of control it's like that's not what no yeah i mean there's sm- <laughs> not how this works you know like nowadays uh you know because when bender first gets his pie then uh andrew's like no you're, we're not gonna smoke him that nowadays it, it was He's like com- no way man you're gonna blaze up in yeah, here nowadays it would be like oh cool dude all right let's go hang out and smoke like that's how the kids would be just because right. it's so much nor- more normalized it's it's casual yeah, legal in a lot of states obviously federally 43 it's not, but it, it's legal and decriminalized in a lot of places so uh you know i think it doesn't have that same stigma. I don't think a jock in today's high school would have an issue smoking like a jock back in the eighties would, you know, of, uh, you know, it's just completely different. It doesn't have that stigma anymore. Uh, so yeah, it is kind of funny watching this back in the eighties where it's like, ah, I'm not going to be a loser pothead or anything. You know, it's definitely that old way of thinking. What do you think they're smoking in this scene? I don't know. I mean, I I know they have like fake stuff, right? Like that they do for movies. It's basically just like, you know, like it looks like pot, but they can smoke it. And it doesn't. Yeah, but I don't know. If, yeah, but I don't know if they had that like thirty five years ago or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they had the real thing. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, you hear about that sometimes on movies. Oh, I know what they're smoking. According to legend. They were smoking oregano on set. <laughs> I'm getting flashbacks of uh, Idle Hands when uh, What's-His-Face tells uh, Devin Sawa. He's like, I heard you can get pretty messed up if you smoke nutmeg and oregano. <laughs> and he does. Oh, shit. Good times. So Vernon's caught skipping through some confidential files by the janitor, Carl. We didn't really talk about Carl that much. Um, just referenced him a couple times. But yeah, he's... The janitor who we see probably, well, he's the only other character outside of Vernon and the 
Well, yeah, the parents in the beginning. But yeah, we see Carl, you know, as, uh, in a handful of scenes. He comes in, it's down in the basement, of course, and asks to keep things between, or Vernon asks to keep things between him and Carl. Carl's like, what are you going to do for me? He's like, well, what do you want? He's like, 50 bucks. Like, you want $50? Then the fucking scene just awkwardly cuts out. Like, we don't see the outcome of that, whether he pays them or not. Because when we come back to them, they're just sitting around drinking and talking about, we'll get to it. Uh, they talk about Ali, Sh- or, yeah, Ali Sheedy and uh, this performance and her character. I was, I, just Ali Sheedy in general, like, whatever happened to her, man? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm just, I, she didn't really, look. I was just looking back at her filmography and her career after I was done watching the movie earlier and I'm like because I got curious because I know this was one of her earlier roles in general short circuit um, what I remember too that was and like that's, right after that this. was after this because her first movie was Bad Boys with Sean Penn and then she did War Games with Matthew Broderick Oxford Blues and then this was her fourth movie but in 85 she had this St. Elmo's Fire and something called Twice in a Lifetime then short circuit 87, she had a movie I remember watching when I was young called Made to Order. Um, and then uh, she didn't come. She wasn't in Short Circuit, too. I know that. Nope. She was in Betsy's Wedding. I remember her. Only the Lonely. I remember that because that was her and uh, 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 John Candy. Now, that's the last movie I saw her in. Man's Best Friend. Outside of her cameo in Home Alone 2, because she's the stewardess girl at the at the counter. She's um yeah, remember Man's Best Friend? Which movie's that? I don't know. It's not ringing a bell. Who's in that? Okay. So directed by John LaFia, who was the director of Child's Play Two, coming soon. She um was the main role. Oh, is that it's Lance like, Hendrickson? The, the killer dog, Lance Fuck, Hendrickson. I've yes, seen that the movie. killer yeah, dog. I love that movie. I, I just didn't pop into my head right away. Yeah, it's like a genetic. It's the dog. dogs. It's the dog killing the fucking mailman from uh, the scene from Friday. It's your ass, Mister Postman. <laughs> yeah. That's from Man's Best Friend. I remember that. Yeah, Ali Sheedy was in that. She was like the lead role, and then nothing but just direct-to-video TV roles and stuff. And I think recently she had a cameo in one of the newer X-Men films. But outside of that, man. And, you know, I've always liked Allie. Uh, It's not like she had the big career that, you know, when I was younger I thought she had. Um, But I don't know. She's kind of went nowhere after all this. And good for her because it sounds like you know, because as far back as I can remember, I don't remember her doing anything stupid, like pulling a uh, Winona Ryder 20 years ago and shoplifting. I don't remember her doing something stupid to damage her career reputation. You know what I mean? She just kind of quietly went away, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, yeah, I mean, like when you think about it, uh, for the five main characters, I mean, you have her, who obviously had a, her hot streak in the 80s. And then you had Ringwald, who disappeared after the 80s, too. I mean, I don't know what she's done. If anything, I remember she had, like, the cameo and what was it, one of the Not Another Teen movie or something like that, or one of those... I forget what movie it was, but she had, like, a cameo in that, but, like, I never remember seeing Molly Ringwald in anything, really. And, um... Yeah, Judd Nelson. I mean, I've seen him in a couple things, like With Judd Nelson, Yeah, but Judd Nelson, he's always had... I've always considered... Him to have like a steady career. Yeah, 
is somewhat steady, but like really, I mean, when you think about the group, I mean, it's really Emilio Estevez and uh, Anthony Michael Hall. Like, really, the only two I would consider that would still be like pretty big stars, like after the '80s, you know, because, uh, you know, I mean, they were in a lot. of I stuff. would argue, I'd argue you when uh, Emilio. I mean, Mighty Ducks man himself, he kept rolling into the 90s. <laughs> the first season. I thought, I thought you were talking about this show. But he just went away. He had that cameo in Mission Impossible and then just stopped acting and did directing. Yeah, I mean, I kind of took it as he was done his acting career. I don't know, it just seemed kind of abrupt for, like, Ellie Sheedy, Molly Ringwald. You know, it just seemed like the 80s or early 90s ends and then, boom, kind of gone, you know? It's fucking auto, man. Repo man, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Emilio, I don't know. They Emilio, back to the, <laughs> Emilio, the muddy thucker. I swear to God, no, but Ali Sheedy, man. I just, I've just, I, I, and again, I don't remember hearing about any substance abuse issues or alcoholism or nothing like that. Like she never got into any. You know, she was just good. She just seems to me like she just had. Uh, a career that she was happy with, content with, and just kind of quietly walked out or stepped down. She was still doing work and she still continues to do some stuff, but like it's not, it's all like low key stuff. Like, you know, maybe they're like, oh, I'm not going to like click on these titles and see what they're from, but direct video stuff perhaps, or maybe it's a Hallmark Network channel uh, original or something, you know, who knows? The fact is, she's doing this stuff, she ain't doing it for free. She's getting paid, so she's still doing what she loves, and she's not, you know, she's just happy. That's what I'm getting at. I'm sorry it's taken me so many words to get there, but she's happy, and I'm happy for her. So, moving right along, Vernon and Carl, like I said before, we cut back to them drinking in the file room now. Vernon says the students today are less respectful than they were earlier in his teaching career. Carl tells them that that's, you know, it's bullshit, that that's changed, that that. That's bullshit that it was uh, him that changed, not the students. He talks about the generation one day taking over the country and how the thought of that scares him to death. And then Vernon tells Carl he doesn't care what the kids think of him, but Carl tells him that he absolutely does. He's like, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do, is what he says. What did you want to be when you were young? When I was a kid, I wanted to be John Lennon. Carl, don't be a goof. I'm trying to make a serious point here. Girl, I've been teaching for 22 years. And each year, these kids get more and more arrogant. Oh, bullshit, man. Come on, Vern. The kids haven't changed. You have. You took a teaching position because you thought it'd be fun, right? Thought you could have summer vacations off. And then you found out it was actually work. That really bummed you out. These kids turned on me. They think I'm a big fucking joke. Come on. Listen, Vern, if you were 16, what would you think of you, huh? Hey, Carl. You think I give one rat's ass what these kids think of me? Yes, I do. You think about this. When you get old, these kids, when I get old, they're going to be running the country. Now, this is the thought that wakes me up in the middle of the night. That when I get older, these kids are going to take care of me. 
I wouldn't count on it. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's right. They're they're both right. Um there's another great fucking scene just because it makes sense, you know. They're they're preaching stuff that they're, they're preaching the book, and it 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 makes absolute fucking sense. They're on point with all their words, and it's just I love this this chemistry between John Capellas and Paul Gleason. Yeah, because you were saying, yeah, Capellas. Uh, you could tell he's playing like obviously he's a janitor, but he's down to earth. Like he's realistic. I mean, Werner, you know, he's older. I love him in this. Yeah, he's great. And then Werner, you know, he's changed. Like, probably when he first started teaching, he probably put more of an effort in to learn more about the students and try to connect and do more. And as time has gone on, now he's a vice principal. He's older, probably closer um, to retiring, you know, thinking about just moving on or moving up or something, you know, advancing his life or his career. And he just doesn't connect with the kids anymore. And then now he just sees, you know, the bad side of everything. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's absolutely true. Like, uh, that, that happens with generations. Every generation thinks that the last or the new generation coming in is, you know, crazier or less respectful or anything. Realistically, it just comes in waves. Like, yeah, think certain things change, but a lot stays the same. So, yeah, it's just absolutely on point. And uh, Werner absolutely cares what the kids think. That's why he's so resentful, because he doesn't understand them. And the kids, you know, don't see the other side and understand. They just don't understand each other. So that's why right. Ryan just puts them down every opportunity he can. Like with Andrew, like I expected better of you. Like, come on, man. Like, you know, you can't do that kind of stuff. But yeah, he absolutely cares. That's why he's such a hard ass and got such a stick up his ass because he doesn't want them to know that he cares and he doesn't want them to kind of get close to him. Essentially, he's pushing the kids away, you know? Yep. Uh, hey. Teacher, leave those kids alone. <laughs> so they eventually all open up and reveal their secrets and their and their yeah relationships with their parents and everything. They're just they're all coming clean with with who they actually are, their inner selves. Claire's popularity subjects her to intense peer pressure, and her parents use her to get back at, at each other during arguments. She's in detention due to skipping school to go shopping. Bender's father is physically and verbally abusive through stories of cigarettes being put out on him, and it's revealed that Bender is in detention for pulling a false alarm. Allison is a compulsive liar with neglectful parents and dreams of running away from home. Andrew admits that his father emotionally abuses him to get to succeed in wrestling, leaving Andrew feeling unable to think for himself. So they they all, when asked about Monday, Claire admits that she'll be back to, you know, her everyday self, back to her ways that she was with her friends and wouldn't notice anyone else from the tension, which sets off Bender, who tears into her before Brian tearfully tells them all that he's in detention because the teacher found a gun in his locker. Um, I was just thinking, I mean, I know it's kind of a weird time, but I was just wondering, um, what is going to happen to us on Monday? We're all together again. I mean, I consider you guys my friends. I'm not wrong, am I? No. So, so on Monday, what happens? Are we still friends, you mean? We're friends now, that is? Yeah. You want the truth? Yeah, I want the truth. I don't think so. 
With all of us or just John? With all of you. That's a real nice attitude, Claire. Oh, be honest, Andy. If Brian came walking up to you in the hall on Monday, what would you do? I mean, picture this. You're there with all the sports. I know exactly what you'd do. You'd say hi to him, and when he left, you'd cut him all up so your friends wouldn't think that you really liked him. No way. Okay. What if I came up to you? Same exact thing. You are a bitch! Why? Because I'm telling the truth? That makes me a bitch? No, because you know how shitty that is to do to someone. And you don't got the balls to stand up to your friends and tell them that you're going to like who you want to like. Okay, what about you, you hypocrite? Why don't you take Allison to one of your heavy metal vomit parties? Or take Brian out to the parking lot at lunch and get higher? What about Andy, for that matter? What about me? What would your friends say if we were walking down the hall together? They'd laugh their asses off, and you'd probably tell them that you were doing it with me so they'd forgive you for being seen with me. Don't you ever talk about my friends. You don't know any of my friends, you don't look at any of my friends, and you certainly wouldn't condescend to speak to any of my friends. So you just stripped to the things that you know. Shopping, nail polish, your father's BMW, and your poor, rich, drunk mother in the Caribbean. Yeah! And as far as being concerned about what's going to happen when you and I walk down the hallways of school, you can forget it, because it's never going to happen. Just bury your head in the sand and wait for your fucking prom. I hate you. Yeah? Good. Okay, then I assume Allison and I are better people than you guys, huh? Us weirdos. Would you, do, would you do that to me? I don't have any friends. Well, if you did. No. I don't think the kind of friends I'd have would mind. I just want to tell each of you that I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't and I will not. I think that's real shitty. Your friends wouldn't mind because they look up to us. You're so conceited, Clint. You're so conceited. You're so, like full of yourself. Why are you like that? I'm not saying that to be conceited. I hate it. I hate having to go along with everything my friends say. Well, then why do you do it? I don't... You don't understand. You don't... You're not friends with the same kind of people that Annie and I are friends with. You know, you just don't understand the pressure that they can put on you. I don't understand what? You think I don't understand pressure, Claire? Well, fuck you! Fuck you! I thought it was a flare gun that he accidentally set off in his locker, or whatever it was. <laughs> but, uh... You know, getting to the whole point of this, um, Claire, the fact that she even tells them, are you mad at her for actually being truthful or are you mad at her because of what she's going to do? Come Monday, you're going to go, you're going to be back to, and this is just like the conversation that occurs in uh, this month's other Patreon episode, Can't Hardly Wait, between... Uh, what's her face and Kenny Fisher at the end about him going back to being himself and everything after they have sex. Yeah, so, Denise and This is similar. Denise, yeah. Denise, thank you. But yeah, there's back to this. We're on it back. Yeah, this um I mean, 
I, I, I can't be mad at her for being honest about it because I, you know, respect. I, I respect someone who just speaks their mind and is truthful. So, yeah, I guess I'd be mad at her for actually going through with it come Monday, you know, and acting. And, and, and still, do you think Claire would do that? Because we don't know what happens on Monday. We're still on Saturday when the film ends. Yeah, I obviously we don't know because uh, things do change, obviously, with Claire and Bender at the end of the film. But. I think what she. But do you think all five of our breakfast clubbers on Monday will be back? We'll just kind of ignore everything that they were gonna do better at. I think it. But it could be in the middle. I I absolutely believe Claire when she's saying if they're in the hallways with their cliques, you know, if she's with all the popular girls, I absolutely believe that she would just kind of snub whoever, or just it would be like an awkward, um, you know it would be an awkward interaction and then she would kind of laugh at him. I absolutely believe that because whether anybody wants to admit it or not, um, I'm the same way. I'm a different person when I'm with friends or if I'm with family or if I'm at work, you know, everybody has different, different versions of themselves. I'm not saying it, that it's disingenuous or, uh, anything like that, but, uh, you know, I'm going to act a little differently than if I'm a, with a group of my high school friends that I am with my family, you know, and I'm going to act differently at right. work or I'm going to act differently when I'm with my wife and my son. You know, I'm not saying like I'm at a completely different person, but of course, Claire's going to be different when she's got all her socialite friends that she cares about. And obviously, like we mentioned, is peer pressure. So I think she's absolutely being honest. And I think. It's probably truthful. Now, am I saying like maybe the Breakfast Club doesn't hang out outside of school on the down low? Maybe. I don't know. Like, obviously, you don't know what happens. That's a possibility. Maybe they get together on a Sunday afternoon somewhere or something like that where nobody's (laughs) going to see them, kind of. Uh, You know, you never know. But I absolutely do believe that, you know, like if uh, Brian walks up and tries to talk to her. Yeah, I absolutely believe that's how it would happen. I think she's being truthful, and I think she's the only one being honest, because it would be the same with Andrew and his jock friends, or Bender I s- and his uh, stoner-slash-bully friends. I believe it. Uh, I think she's just being truthful. Also conceited in this scene. That's why it's so good, because she's being truthful, but she's also very conceited when she says, like, well, you guys look up to us, and you guys admire us, the popular people, which... It's true to a certain extent, but it also isn't completely true. It's very conceited, so that that's why it works so well. It's, it, right. it, there's shades there. She's being right. honest, maybe kind of hurtful and bitchy. I don't know. I mean, I would personally rather just be honest with me. I would rather uh, her just tell me right then instead of me getting that awkward interaction and getting laughed at later, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um yeah, so like, like I can see them all like getting together, uh, like every, on a Sunday for like brunch or something. But no, um, in all seriousness, during high school, forget about it. All bets are off as far as like these five re- reuniting for anything. But I definitely, one hundred percent, can see them getting together like a couple years after they graduate. You know, as they get older, and they start you know, taking these things, you know, more seriously, you know, than what, then instead of for granted, um, I could definitely see them making it like a, a, an event, them all getting together like once or twice a year as they get older. But I think as far as them in, as long as they're in high school and still young, they're always going to fall back on their clicks. And no matter what they try and say to each other, 
and that's how it is. You know? So, for better or worse. Um, oh, and the entire scene, by the way, with, like, Brian being tearful and all of them going over, like, who they are and this, that, and the third... It wasn't scripted. A lot of it wasn't scripted. As it was a lot of the movie in general was ad-libbed. Because apparently they like studied... like They they treated this like a play. Um, So they went through a lot of rehearsals strictly off the script. But then when it came time to the film, you know, the camera's rolling, Hughes allowed them, you know, to have room for, like I mentioned before... uh, you know improvisations and so yeah you can, a lot of the a lot of this scene apparently is that so yeah and i think that's another that's why it's so long it's a long scene it's a long scene. And i think that has it has a lot to do with that is that they're just gonna go in with the flow and and he was allowing that to continue yeah I'm, so. i mean it's a long scene and it does flow like a conversation because you have like, it's a natural conversation yes because yeah, you have turns like you know one minute it's kind of funny they're kind of laughing next minute it's serious one minute they're all getting yep. along next minute mm-hmm. uh they're arguing and calling each other different names so it's, it's absolutely like it's just like a roller coaster going through uh this scene and these conversations and yeah it's absolutely believable absolutely real sounding conversation between uh some kids that are kind of reflecting on themselves so yeah it's excellent stuff and what follows this great scene well a random dance montage <laughs> set to Carlo devito's we are not alone Uh, yeah, before Bender just breaks into his locker closet uh, through the... Yeah, he sneaks back. I'm sorry. Bender sneaks back into his locker closet through the ceiling after this. So originally, Claire was supposed to dance just her, but Molly Ringwald felt uncomfortable dancing alone, so Hughes had the entire cast dance. So she said that she regrets this because not only did she think her dancing was bad, her inability to do the dance all solo led to the, you know the MTV type choreographed dancing sequence that we got, which she feels hurt the movie. I don't feel this scene hurts the movie. I just think this scene comes at a bad time. You know, we're supposed to be at this like serious down moment. Like we're coming off of this, the the dramatic side of the films, like, you know, fucking Mona Lisa. And we follow that up with this goofball dance number that just is random as all hell. Um, yeah, I could see what they were going for. You want some uh, lighter levity type stuff after the heavy conversation and the drama. Right. But it is kind of jarring. It. I, I don't have a problem with it. I never really thought it was bad or it stood out. But yeah, if somebody felt kind of, you know, like it was a little too jarring, I can understand that too. I could totally see where someone's coming from because it is kind of just weird. You have these deep, emotional conversations and then hey let's dance guys <laughs> pretty much um so claire and the others then convince brian this is so fucked up but it makes sense i guess they get they all get him to write the thousand per the thousand word essay 
for all of them. Kind of like just speak for them as a group. Since it's a bit redundant for all of them to, to do so. It's like, bullshit. Y'all just don't want to do it yourselves. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, which makes no sense at all. But because that's the whole point of the essay for everyone to do their own explaining themselves. You know, that's... It does. It, like I said, makes no sense because that's the whole point of the essay for everyone to write their own explaining, you know, themselves, their own. However you want to word it, whatever. But anyways, I digress. So Claire gives Allison a makeover, which definitely piques Andrew's interest. <laughs> I love that look that she gives Brian as she's approaching Andrew. She's like, "You're supposed to recognize me." And uh, Brian, I'm sorry, Claire goes to see Bender and she gives him a kiss. So, yeah, it's pretty much all. Everyone's heading home. The tension's over. Brian leaves the essay in the library for Vernon to read after they leave. As the students part their ways, Allison and Andrew kiss, as do Claire and John. Allison rips Andrew's state championship patch from his jacket to keep. And Claire gives John one of her diamond earrings, which... He immediately puts on his uh, ear as she leaves. Fun fact, John... Yeah, fun fact. Bender is the only member of the Breakfast Club to never be shown crying. He got close after showing his cigarette burn, but... And, uh... Climbing up the stairs, but he suppressed, like, most abused kids. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, he's not properly in touch with his emotions. That's why he's so angry all the time, Right. Right. Um, so we hear the essay as Vernon reads from it in which Brian states that Vernon has already judged who they are using stereotypes but each of us is a brain an athlete, a basket case, a princess and a criminal does that answer your question? he signs the essay with sincerely yours The Breakfast Club Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. And you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, with the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain. And an athlete. And a basket case. A princess. And a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. So despite Vernon uh, wanting a thousand word essay, you know how many words it ended up being? (laughs) I'm guessing like no more than a couple hundred because that's not a thousand. Ninety (laughs) six. Yeah. Ninety (laughs) six. Yeah, they definitely failed that assignment. Yeah, I'll say so. Um, And yeah, we get that famous Bender fist in the air moment to end the film, and which was improvised because Bender, he was supposed to just walk into the sunset, so to speak, and John Hughes asked him to play around with a few actions. And when he was done and they were finishing up, Nelson threw his fist up without running it by anybody. And they all loved it. So they kept it, and it became the iconic ending that it is today. And that is The Breakfast Club from John Hughes. 
Alright, let's take a look at the box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out, we put more in. I want receipts. Alright, The Breakfast Club premiered on February 7th. 1985 in Los Los Angeles, not Las Vegas, Los Angeles, before being released on February 15th, 1985 from Universal Pictures. It opened up across 1,071 screens, came in third place opening weekend with $5.1 million. Second weekend, it grossed $4.2 million, still in number three. Total gross, $51.5 million. The budget, just one. Just a million, just a cool million <laughs> to generate 51.5. You know what? It's so funny to me. I'm surprised because this is a universal film and they've been doing this a lot lately with like the old franchises. They have like these direct to video sequels that come out of nowhere. I'm kind of shocked that they've never done like a, you know, a breakfast club, the next generation or something that like direct the video and Netflix or something. You know what I mean? I'm surprised since it's their, you know, IP that they've never done more with it. Especially when you see considering $1 million generated 51 and a half million. Like you kidding? Yeah. I, I don't know if it has to do with John Hughes, but like, it's such a product from him. I think without him, it, it, it's really tough to make something else or kind of go on. I'm sure the studio execs don't look at it that way. Maybe they're worried about backlash because this movie's so beloved because usually, and this isn't always the case, but a lot of those direct-to-video sequels, they're kind of like movies that were popular, people liked, uh, but usually they're not like beloved franchise. Like this movie, I would say, is like a beloved teen movie. I mean, at least that's the way I look at it. So maybe they don't want to touch that or maybe they just don't think the market's there. Maybe they just think people kind of forgot about it because it's a movie from the 80s. I don't know, but I'm surprised too, yeah, because it, it, it is a um, a premise that lends itself pretty well to having sequels or having... It's a no-brainer. Yeah. I'm, I mean, they've, they've, they've got like, you know, 11 teen American Pie fucking movies and you, I'm surprised. Not that I'm sitting here... I'm kind of getting antsy, like I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of getting worked up, like I'm <laughs> anticipating one or something. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying, like, I'm surprised, you know, as far as like a, a business perspective, I'm surprised they haven't done yeah. any more with the uh, property. It, so. it would be very easy to have like one of the original five come back, like maybe Anthony Michael Hall or something, or Molly Ringwald as a teacher and have new kids. Yeah, it would be super easy to do that, but for whatever reason, hasn't happened. Alright, well let's take a walk to the Critics Corner and see what they had to say about the film. Alright, so The Breakfast Club has a Rotten Tomato score of 89% based off of 65 reviews with a critical consensus that says The Breakfast Club is a warm, insightful, and very funny look into the inner lives of teenagers. It's got a meta score of 66 out of 100 based on 25 reviews. Eve's rewarded the film 3 stars out of 4 and called the performances wonderful, adding that the film was more or less predictable but doesn't need earth-shaking revelations. It's about kids who grow willing to talk to one another and 
It's about kids who grow willing to talk to one another, and it has a surprisingly good ear for the way they speak. Gene Siskel, his little partner at the time, gave the film three and a half stars out of four and wrote this confessional formula has worked in films as different as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Big Chill, and My Dinner with Andre, and it's work and it works here too. It works it works especially well in the Breakfast Club because we keep waiting for the film to break out of its claustrophobic set and give us a typical teenage movie sex or violence scene that doesn't happen much to our delight. And he's right. It's very contaminated or it's very contained. Contaminated. And, um, I know. <laughs> it's very contained. And yeah. Uh, Janet Maslin from New York Times wrote that there are very good young actors in the Breakfast Club, though a couple of them have been given unplayable roles, namely Ali Sheedy and Judd Nelson. Adding the five young stars would be have would have mixed well even without the fraudulent encounter group candor towards which the Breakfast Club forces them. Mr. Hughes, having thought up the characters and simply flung them all together, should have left well enough alone. James Harwood from Variety panned the film as a movie that will probably pass as deeply profound among today's teenage audience, meaning the youngsters in the film spend most of their time talking to each other instead of dancing, dropping their drawers, and throwing food. This, on the other hand, should not suggest that they have anything intelligent to say. James Rardinelli from Rear Reviews wrote back in 1998 that few will argue that The Breakfast Club is a great film, but it has a candor that is unexpected and refreshing in a sea of too often generic teen-themed films. The material is a little talky, albeit not in a way that will cause anyone to confuse it with something by Eric Romer, but it's hard not to be drawn into the world of these characters. David Denby from New York Magazine and Vulture wrote that Hughes understands adolescence as well as anyone who has ever made up movies about them. He has a fluent way with young actors. He has a fluent way with young actors. In this picture, his dramatic ideas may be cheesy, but Hughes still manages to create some excitement and laughs. So yeah, I feel like all of these Chicago reviewers are praising Hughes for being a fellow Chicagoan, but aren't giving him an honest strike or an honest shake. Um, Cause a lot of the positives were people from Chicago and a lot of the negatives were just respected reviewers who I, you know, have opinions that I hold um, to a value of respect. So that's just my two cents. Take it or leave it. Nothing more, nothing less. And we can move on to the pros and the cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Coy, what are your pros for The Breakfast Club? Well, I mean, my first pro is the acting. I mean, all the... Um, young actors in this film are great. I mean, there there's no weak point to me uh, from the five main kids. Um, and then also uh, Gleason as Werner. Uh, you know, obviously it's a very small cast because there's only, you know, the five kids, the teacher and the janitor. Uh, so, but everybody's excellent. I mean, with, without the acting, this movie just would not hold up. I mean, that's really what it hinges on is uh, believable performances from the kids. And I think everybody plays the role very well. I think everybody was casted 
extremely well for their role. So, uh, yeah, the acting, I mean, everybody just does great. It's just uh, the gold standard for a teen movie, in my opinion. Um, my next pro uh, that follows right after that is the writing. I just love the writing. I know a lot of the movie is ad-libbed as well, but it just feels so believable. It broaches subjects that are still important today, you know, about um, kids uh, relating to their parents and kids finding themselves and learning, uh, you know, not to classify other kids in just one category that we can all be many different things. Um, I just really like the message the movie has, and I just really like the dialogue between the kids and just the self-discovery uh, throughout the film and how they all become friends. Uh, I think Hughes really does have a great ear for uh, and um, pen for writing dialogue for kids. And, you know, I don't know what it is because obviously Hughes was an adult at the time, but it just captures uh, that uh, teenage angst and wonderment so well in his films. And obviously uh, the actors ad-libbed and added things of their own, which just adds that little bit of extra. But yeah, absolutely. The writing would be uh, my next pro. And then um, my last pro is actually um, just the way the music and sound design is done. So I don't know if I picked up on it in earlier viewings, but you know, there's scenes like when they're in detention for the first time, there's like no music. It's just dead quiet. You feel like you're in a library and you feel like you're in detention. And then obviously later when you have like the dramatic scenes, there's a little bit of dramatic music. Uh, you have the dance scene. You have the iconic um, Don't You by Simple Minds in there and a few other songs thrown in. So I just think they did a really good job because at the beginning you feel like you're there on a Saturday morning. It just has that right feeling when they're sitting in the library, just of this quiet dullness with the echo of the teacher uh, talking. Uh, it just captures it very well. And I think a lot of that is down to the sound, just the way <clears throat> the sound's done. I mean, you hear Gleason's footsteps on the carpet coming through when he first walks into the library at the beginning um, so I just wanted to shout that out just the way the music and the sound design are done where it kind of goes quiet when they're in the boring detention parts, uh, and then ramps up in others. Uh, it just really stood out to me, uh, when I was rewatching it this time. Uh, so yeah, those are my pros. All right. I'm going to keep it simple for me. Uh, my pros are the performances, the writing slash ad living, cause that's very crucial. I have to separate those two cause they're very different. Uh, for reasons I explained just a little bit ago. The songs that Hughes handpicked for the music, uh, just it works for me, definitely. But not a lot, but the memorable, memorable songs, some great 80s classics on there. And it's just fucking, this should be, I should have said this first, highly rewatchable. I have seen this movie, I can't tell you how many times over the years. And... It, it it just it never it never gets stale. I don't know what it is. This movie just works as a whole. So yeah, like I said, keep it in simple. Those four should suffice, and those are my main reasons. Um, you should check the film out. So with every pro, there's a con. Well, eh, not for every pro, there's a con. But with pros, we also have cons. What are yours, Corey? Uh, I mean, obviously, I think this movie is a near perfect movie. Uh, so my only con would really be just some of the dialogue doesn't age well. I feel like we go through this when we watch older movies. It's just the way it is. Sensibilities have changed. Uh, there's some homophobic stuff in here I don't like. Uh, there's a few words in here I don't like. 
Uh, you know, so it does age a little bit. I, it's not anything that would ruin the movie for me. It's not anything where I would say like a younger person or teen today wouldn't be able to go back and watch this film and enjoy it. Uh, but right. there is a few things that's cringeworthy. The upskirt scene, it, like you brought up that shot, oh, not the fact yeah. that it happens, but the shot that they put in, there's just a few things that stand out that, uh, yeah, it's definitely a minor con for me, but like I said, overall, the movie's still uh, fairly timeless and enjoyable. So it's nothing that would hold you back, but it's a few things that just kind of make me cringe a little bit as I'm watching it nowadays. Yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from. Like, some of the material definitely doesn't hold up. Like, I know there was some F-bombs still being dropped nonchalantly and stuff back then. But uh, my only con, though, that I wrote down is I can see how some people are turned off by this since it's basically a 90-minute conversation between angst teenagers in in the mid-80s. Like, it's not for everyone. And I've grown to realize and accept that over the years. Um, I don't even know if that's really a con, to be honest with you. Other than that, you know, flawless victory. (laughs) So, um, yeah. Alright, let's move on to alternative versions for another dimension. Alternative versions from another dimension. So, have you heard about this rumored two and a half hour cut of The Breakfast Club that's been talked about? Uh, yeah, I've heard about an extended cut, but I don't know exactly what it involves. Yeah, I'm curious, what do they uh, rumoredly have uh, added to it? Uh, well, he filmed a lot of this stuff, but the negatives were destroyed. Uh, Hugh said that he had the only complete copy of The Breakfast Club on film. Among the cut scenes from the movie, some film, some only written, were Carl predicts where the five kids will where the five kids will be in thirty years. Bender will have killed himself. Claire will have had three boob jobs and a a facelift. Brian will have become very successful but die of a heart attack due to the stress of the high-paying job. Allison will be a great poet, but no one will care. And Andrew will be... I'm sorry. Andrew will marry a gorgeous airline stewardess who will become fat after having kids. Uh, There was a dream sequence. Allison imagines Andrew as a... uh, Gluttonous Viking, Bender as a prisoner, Clara as a bride, Brian as an astronaut, and herself as a vampire. Uh, there was an unfilmed alternative to this dream sequence with all the five kids um, imagining random things, including cars, naked women, Godzilla, beer, and f- fighter planes. And these things ended up being, they, they ended up filling the room until Vernon interrupts. Uh, Bender was not going to walk to school in the original script. He was going to be driven by his dad in a rusty tow truck and have a brief fight with him before his dad drives off. See, I like the way we have it now. I like the way he walks and he just describes his family life. We don't actually get to see it. I like it that way. I like the way it is in the theatrical cut as far as uh, Bender and his uh, home life goes. Uh, Bender was also tossed like bagged lunch with his father saying, you are a waste of lunch meat. After Bender demonstrates... Life at Big Bree's house, Brian, Big Bry's house. Brian stops Bender and corrects him with a much more pessimistic version of the of the skit. Claire then proceeds to act out her life 
before asking Bender to demonstrate his version. Bender's routine changes as well here. He mimics his mom. He stops commenting that they will make me work to pay off the dentist for the teeth he bursts or busts. The scene where Andrew and Allison are walking to get sodas is extended to a point where Allison pulls out a pack of smokes and smokes one. After getting the sodas, Bender shakes his can violently and places it among the five to see who gets the rigged one. Allison ends up getting it, and then she open, when she opens the can, all the soda squirts directly into her mouth. Um, after Ver- Vernon asked who, was, who has to use the lavatory, the five go to the bathroom. Vernon gives the boys two minutes and the girls three. Claire catches Allison in a stall eating a bag of chips, repulsing her. Bender mocks Brian for sitting down to pee instead of using the urinal. Uh, when the group is sitting in a circle and Allison mentions that she can write and do other things with her toes, she was going to follow up with an actual demonstration. Um, let's see. Several staff members were cut out of the script before filming. There was going to be a character named Dr. Lang, who is the social studies teacher who dresses oddly, and then a gym teacher named Robin, who was going to help Vernon on a few workout machines until Vernon injures his back. And she eventually visits the students while they are in their circle in the library. Robin initially re- initially replaced many of Carl's scenes, so that's interesting. That's that 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 explains why we got a lot of Carl in this movie, and it didn't really ever make sense to me. I mean, I like don't get me wrong, I love John Capello's, but it makes sense that originally some of them scenes were for someone else, and it's this gym teacher here, Robin. Um, Carl was only set to be a minor character with only two scenes. During a cast reunion in honor of the film's 25th anniversary, Ali Sheedy revealed that a director's cut existed, but Hughes' widow did not disclose any details concerning its whereabouts. It's probably sitting in some attic somewhere in a box. How much you want to bet? Probably sitting right next to the uh, extended cut of planes, trains, and automobiles. Oh yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely sitting in a box somewhere. Um, You know, one thing you mentioned, you liked Bender walking up. I actually would be interested to see like his dad drop him off. I would kind of like to see that interaction to be completely honest with you. And then maybe have him like walk home at the end or something. Maybe have his dad say, you're on your own getting home or something like that. And then we get the famous pose in the film. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I would have liked to see Bender's dad. uh, Honestly, that's fair. I mean, I don't know. There's just something about that. I don't want to label it a mystery, but there's just something about, not seeing it and just hearing Bender because it also gives the viewer the decision to either believe it or not. You know, he could be exaggerating. He could be making this stuff up or it could be, it could be real. It could be true. Who knows? Um, but overall I can see how all this, you know, can come up. You put all this stuff together. It's definitely a two and a half hour movie, but, uh, that all that being said, I can definitely see why this this stuff was cut. It makes total sense, especially the scene with them imagining shit until Vernon interrupts. Like that just sounds like a pointless special effects extravaganza that this film does not need. Doesn't need all those you know bells and whistles, gadgets, gadgets, stuff like that. Yeah, the the top flight. They don't need gadgets, gadgets. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, I was gonna agree with you. Most of the stuff you were talking about sounds like what you would hear or see in a standard teen movie, and this movie isn't that, and it cut that. And I think the movie's better for cutting a lot of that stuff you mentioned. Is it you know? Let's say they did add it all in, or let's say they added some of it, took some other stuff that's currently in the movie out, 
you know, I think it would just be more of a standard teen movie kind of to its detriment. You know, it still might be good, but it might be like, yeah, it was pretty good, except it had like weird random dream scenes and weird bathroom scenes and whatever else, you know. So I, I think the movie's great the way it is. Honestly, I don't really need too much of an extended cut or the extra scenes. I mean, would I watch them if they were out there? Sure. But Absolutely. It's not one of those movies where I'm like, wow, it's really missing a few things. Like, I honestly, I think the movie's great the way it is. And that's the thing. There's nothing missing. It doesn't it doesn't need anything. So it is it's fine the way it is. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. A lot of this stuff that I just mentioned for this director's cut. Um, it just a lot of unnecessary stuff like the whole bit with them going and Allison pulling out a pack of smokes and smoking a cigarette. Okay, so Allison smokes. Big deal. We can cut that. We can shorten this scene. I still like the chemistry between Allison and Andrew, but we don't need this. That's so I can see why they just trimmed it. Um, you know, then, then Bender. I do like, of all the things, I kind of wish how we would have seen the uh, Bender shaking his can violently and making everyone pick one. Although I wouldn't, I could do without the whole Allison swallowing it all one swig bit at the end of the the whole ordeal that again that's just it, clearly that, that would have been you know special effects driven and don't need it so all right well we can move on then to modern cancellations someone just got canceled someone just got canceled someone just got canceled i wonder what they did i mean this is pretty obvious Bender, right? I mean, let's not let Vernon off the hook with his intentions and backwards mentality, but all in all, it's Bender in my book. Oh, I mean, yeah, like definitely as far as his language, it's definitely, yeah, he would be canceled. Like the impregnating the prom queen, like that right there, he would be like alienated right. and canceled. Uh, and he has so much more. I mean, there's definitely homophobia and some other stuff in there that, you know, was prevalent, uh, you know, in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. So I see what you're saying, but I'm going to go a little different on my cancellation. Um, and surprisingly or not, I'm going to cancel uh, Anthony Michael Hall's character, Brian. And the reason I would do that is uh, like nowadays, if you bring a flare gun into school, that would be some shit. Like, I know he gets detention and he had like the little fire or whatever at his locker. But if he did that nowadays, I mean, he would probably be in jail. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that it's such a serious matter. He'd be in jail. Uh, now, he'd be expelled. This definitely would be yeah. making the five o'clock news. Yeah. I mean, would he be in jail for a long time if he just had a flare gun and he wasn't trying to hurt anybody, just hurt himself? Probably not, but I mean, just with how serious everything is nowadays, and it's not, I'm not saying it to make fun of anything, like, it's obviously a huge problem in, um, you know, the US, uh, and it's always tragic when it happens, and it's just such a serious thing, like, I guess the humor for me is just, like, how different of a time this was in the 80s, where, yeah, you brought a flare gun, you get a Saturday detention, <laughs> uh, whereas now, you know, nearly 40 years later, I mean, he would be, like, immediately arrested like if that happened and expelled oh no doubt so just how different it is but also on the you know on the flip side of this movie they're you know smoking pot and 
I don't want to be a burnout and you know, I got to keep it on the down low and hide it in my locker. And then nowadays, like, you know, you can't do it in school, but you could just go home and smoke up and pretty much, unless you have a ton of weed, hey, you're not going to get in any kind of trouble. Smoke up Johnny. Yeah. So it's just funny how some of that stuff changes, uh, you know, on the scales, like, you know, the flare gun, no big deal. Pot, huge deal. <laughs> you know, now it's kind of uh, reversed. Yeah. And, you know, speaking as a fellow smoker, also, I feel like a lot of people were just kind of trying to cancel smokers out in general and all, like kind of like shame us. So I can see how Bender being a smoker definitely could also tie into that. Um, anyway, that was my closing statement on that. All right, Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? I'm with John. That breaking glass stuff at the end of that bit with the weed would have never made it into the final cut if I was editing this. Other than that, I mean, I can't touch a perfect piece other than that scene. I'm not, I don't know. This is me reaching. I'm really grasping for straws here, but uh, I just wanted to put something in. And if I was, if, if, if someone gave, if, if Hugh sat down with me and said, hey, change something, that would be it. Because I'd be like, dude, this is perfect. I don't, I'm not touching any of this. Okay. That, that whole goofy shit with the glass you don't like. Sure, we could take that out in my cut. So that's all for me. Simple. Yeah. I, I mean,. I guess mine would kind of be the same. Like, if you really ask me, I would say just don't change anything. Just keep it. I think it's a classic. I think it's perfect kind of the way it is. But there's definitely two goofy spots. And like you said, the part with the glass shattering and then the dance scene. The dance scene never bothered me. But honestly, if you were if you asked me to take anything out of the movie, you take that out. It wouldn't bother me. You know, the, the dancing is just silly break up a fun i might even say don't even necessarily take it out maybe just move it from where it is because you're coming off such a heavy scene right and then you have the dancing maybe you move it to earlier in the movie yeah. when there's more antics going on it would fit better but then also would they really be dancing with each other i don't know so i guess you could take it out too but it, like i said it's not a me it's not like i'm sitting there every time i watch the movie and be like oh this dance scene again you know it doesn't really bother me <laughs> that much but it's definitely like the one of the weirder scenes in the movie it doesn't quite belong yeah absolutely i see what you're saying all right finger looking good <laughs> finger looking good i've never had a particular favorite scene favorite scene because to me the entire movie is the best factor from start to finish you know i mean i'm just sitting here like i had nothing written down like i, I left this blank my my response to this question or this category because like every time I watch this, it's always start to finish. You know, it's it's just an easy, cool eighty-five minute watch, start to finish, bell to bell. And I, I honestly can't believe I'm having a hard time coming up with a favorite scene because I just love the movie as a whole. I never really sat down and thought about what my particular favorite scene would be. So honestly, um probably the whole bit with Bender telling the joke and then going back and then no because then we get that shit with the panty shot which I'm not a fan of maybe I should have taken that out in my mulligan moment too um yeah put that on there 
yeah, I don't I don't have a favorite scene. I love this movie from start to finish. The whole movie is my favorite scene. That's my final answer, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, this it, it's a tough movie to pick, and you know, I say that in a good way. Like, there's just so much good. Like, honestly, I couldn't blame anybody for liking uh, you know, maybe the beginning more or the end more, you know, or the like I can't really necessarily blame anybody just because i think it's all so great and it flows so well you know with some movies especially like action movies you watch it's like the the best scene's gonna be like the action scene or the big set piece but with a movie like this it's just you know a continual conversation and it just keeps evolving so uh you know there's just slightly different scenes but they're all kind of similar and they're all really great you know so i say it in a good way it's just harder to pick out um, but I mean, I guess if I have to pick, it resonates the, the most with me when they're sitting in the circle, you know, doing the heavy reflecting, especially with Brian. I think Anthony Michael Hall, I mean, everybody brings it in this film, I'm not trying to minimize everybody's performance is excellent. Um, but Anthony Michael Hall in that scene just really brings it like with the crying and, you know, like just how he calls, uh, Claire conceited. Uh, I, I've just always really related to him and yeah. All the kids in that scene, but really, uh, Anthony Michael Hall to me in that scene steals uh, the show. Um, and I just love that scene. I think it's very realistic. I think it's very believable. I love how it flows from kind of lighthearted to serious to their arguing to their friends. I just like all that because that's really how it goes, especially since they've all been smoking. You know, <laughs> you tend to get maybe a little bit more reflective and chill, you know. So, uh, yeah, I just love that scene. But the beginning scenes, too, when they're all first sitting down, it's just so iconic and so much fun. So it's hard for me to pick, too. But I would I would pick that uh, towards the end when they're sitting in the circle reflecting, uh, just mainly based on Anthony Michael Hall's performance. But all of everybody's great. So, yeah, that's my answer. All right, then. Let's move on to Like This, Try That. You can do with this, or you can do with that. That's what makes this film so excellent is the fact that it's such a simple movie, yet it's never often copied and no one's ever attempted to remake it. It stands on its own merit, so I I guess I'd recommend either Before Sunrise or Before Sunset based on the conversation factor. Again, there's not much to The Breakfast Club, but it's always been respected, so... um, Try that. Absolutely. Like I said, based on the conversation factor, you know, films we just talked about previously, before sunrise, before sunset, there are also films based on conversation factor. Although more things happen throughout the film of The Breakfast Club, um, I just think that the movies, what stands out with the movies most known for when I look back on the, the, the film after all this time is the conversations that occur and the quotes and everything. And this one was kind of hard. It made me think about it. And I think what it came down to was the conversation factor. It's now three times I've mentioned that, but it's the truth. Um, and based on that, what perfect film than before sunrise or sunset? I mean, honestly, you can do either way or do all for that matter. So curious to hear what your answer is, though, because I was actually yeah. stumped on this a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I have a perfect movie. I think I brought it up on the show before. I'm pretty sure. Um, And this is one of my favorite um, just conversation-type movies. Uh, 
probably one of my favorite movies ever, really. Like, probably in my top, like, 25, 50, somewhere around there. Um, and that's My Dinner with Andre. Um, it's another movie where it's just two guys having a conversation the entire movie. Uh, so for anybody who doesn't know, it came out in the early 80s. Um, it's starring uh, Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory. And uh, they both play, basically it's like autobiographical. Like they both essentially play themselves. Uh, you know, like their names are the same. Like I'm pretty sure they're just playing themselves in the movie. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just Wallace Shawn, Andre Gregory sitting down to dinner. Uh, they're old friends, haven't seen each other in a long time. Uh, they're both actors and they're just sitting down reflecting on their lives, reflecting on the industry. Um, and it's just an excellent movie. I mean, for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's not long. It's just set in the restaurant with them talking. Um, and it's just one of those movies like before sunset, before sunrise, breakfast club, where the movie just flows. Like you're just sitting there through this conversation before you know it, it's over. Uh, it's much uh in the same way the conversation flows with that to between two friends joking two friends reflecting having serious conversations uh and then you know kind of having some self-realization at the end and then the two friends parting their way at the end of the movie so anybody who hasn't seen it my dinner with andre highly recommended i mean you know i'm talking a four and a half star movie like uh, highly recommended for anybody who hasn't seen it it's a very underrated under talked about movie and who doesn't like wallace sean i mean everybody knows wallace sean and obviously and andre gregory as well just a fantastic perfect movie i think uh even though it's a more adult it's not like obviously a teen movie i think it fits with breakfast club very well just in its uh style and setup just very simple conversation based so yeah my dinner with andre is my answer all right, movie MVPs. All right, now you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... It's time to pick our MVPs of the film. And for me, it's none other than Paul Gleason. This established him as a respected actor and not just another character actor looking for work, in my opinion. Because up until this movie, you look at you look at Paul Gleason's filmography, and it's nothing but like small minor roles or television work, a lot of television work. And I think this role really established him as you know someone to look look out for, and that's why he was cast in the films that he was during the later part of his career. So because it's it's a very night and day reference when you look at. Uh, his filmography you know so yeah that's that's my answer how about you yeah so this is probably one of the tougher mvps uh for me just because there's so many great performances i mean obviously there really you know, are. Yours is, yeah yours is gleason um iconic and great performance um you know bender uh you know or judd nelson obviously i think that would be a lot of people's pick uh, cause he's great too. Like that's a very easy character to get wrong. Like where either he just comes off as a complete asshole or he comes off as not tough and not realistic, you know? So Judd Nelson, you know, I give huge props to like Bender, uh, is great in the movie, but for me, I, I've always been an Anthony Michael Hall fan. I, I really appreciate him. It could be because out of all the characters, I relate to him the most. Um, you know, I wasn't necessarily like a huge, uh, like school nerd, but, uh, you know, out of all the kids, 
he would be the closest to what I was as a kid. You know, I was never a jock. I was never obviously a prom queen. I was never really a basket case. And I was definitely never like a bully or badass. So I was definitely closest to Anthony Michael Hall and the geek. So I related to him, like just kind of his feelings of, you know, like at the end when they ask him to write the paper, I've, I've had plenty of situations like that where I'm in a group project and they're like, well, you're the smartest one out of us. Why don't you just do it? Um, and then also just, you know, the way the feelings of like how his club doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I was in stuff like that in school. Uh, you know, I was in the chess club at a, in middle school, like, and it was like your club doesn't matter. That's not important. Like, uh, you know, the sports teams or the social club. So I totally relate to uh, Anthony Michael Hall's uh, character, Brian, in this. And I just think he brings it like, yeah, it's very easy for that role to be. He could come off as whiny or smug and too smart. But I think Anthony Michael Hall has a nice balance of, uh, you know, just seeming like a nice kid who's kind of naive and, you know, kind of shy and kind of lost in this has a lot of pressure. I can understand that type of pressure. I can relate to that to do well in school. Uh, so, yeah, he is my pick. I just think uh, he nails the emotional part. He's the best part in the best scene of the movie. So, yeah, I have to give it to Anthony Michael Hall. I liked him the best in the film is Brian. All right. Let's move on to the final category, the final effect treatment. Ow. On a scale of one. Ow. On a scale. Ah. On a scale. Ow. On a scale of one to ten. <laughs> on a scale of one to ten. Give me the damn veggies. What do you think? All right. Five stars. Like I've been saying throughout this episode, this film is perfect. This film is just something I can just get basked away in for 85 minutes or so and not have a care in the world. It's a simple movie. There's not much to it. It's tremendous performances going on throughout this movie. Um, especially if it also helps being a film that I grew up with. Because, you know, it always helps with that. You, being in touch with your inner youth, um, this movie definitely does that. And so, you know, for, for everything from the performances to the direction and writing from Hughes to the soundtrack, you know, we got some Simple Minds, little Wang Chung, and yeah, you've got yourself a winner here. And like I said, Paul Gleason is just incredible. So... Yeah, this this just no other way around it. Five stars, flawless victory. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, for my rating, uh, it's obviously got to be high. Uh, I'm gonna give it four and a half out of five. I mean, there's a few things like we talked about the panty shot. Uh, you know, a few minor things like the dance scene, just very minor. I, it's nothing that usually takes away, but there's a few spots where I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know. And I thought about the panty shot too, but I think that it, it's just. A minor blimp, you know, compared to the overall picture. I think it's forgivable. Yeah. yeah, it is. So I'll give it four and a half. I mean, I think it's a pretty much a perfect film. I think it's one of the best teen films. Um, I think it's still relevant even today. It'll I mean, always be know, relevant. Yeah, it's just for a film to have a staying power for 40 years and still be out there and like pop culture. I mean, not another team movie came out. What? 25 years or 20 years, 20 after years this ago. Movie came out. Oh, I thought it came out about 15 years or so. I think. Okay. It wasn't even that much, but they were like still reference of breakfast club. But most of the other references in the film were from films that came out recently. Mm -hmm. So I think that says something to like its relevancy 
and how important it is in culture. Um, you know, just a few years ago, my wife dressed up as Bender <laughs> for um, Halloween. Nice. Uh, you know, she had most of this stuff, so she had her get up. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's still just such a part of uh, like, especially people are just a part of our culture. And uh, it's definitely just one of the best teen movies, uh, you know, like you look compare this to like a movie like Fast Times that we had recently talked about. I like Fast Times, but I think Breakfast Club is on a slightly higher level just uh, due to its just due to its emotional and just due to the way it talks about important issues. I, I just think it has uh, more depth to it, essentially, than uh, Fast Times or a lot of other teen movies. Uh, and it's relatable and it's timeless, in my opinion. Yeah, you can tell it's made from the 80s. Yeah, there's a few things that don't age well at all. Age like fine milk. But uh, for the most part, it's timeless and relatable, and it's the same problems kids are having today. You know, it might be slightly different, but it, for the most part, it's the same issues. You know, kids are always going to have issues with their parents or have issues fitting into cliques or have issues, uh, um, you know, realizing them true selves, you know, and this tackles all of it. It's just so smart, so well done. The acting from everybody is just so top notch, which, you know, it's not easy to do to get. Uh, great performances. I mean, most of these got kids were adults, but or close to adults. But you know, it's not easy to get a, um, great performances out of young actors like that. And Hughes did it; like he nailed it, five out of five, <laughs> and all the actors. And then obviously, Paul Gleason and uh, and um, what's Janner's name? John Capella is that that's the actor's name? I don't want to say it wrong. John Capellos. Capellos, yeah. So Capellos and Gleason added in there are excellent as well. Um, so yeah, it's just fantastic movie from top to bottom, near perfect movie, uh, and just still tons of fun to watch. Yeah, and it really is a timeless movie. This this film will go on and on for generations, and it'll it'll always be relevant. So and that's another reason why I think I love it so much. Anyway. This episode has been sponsored by Stereotypes. Follow your own ambitions and create your own path. Be your own person and that's all who you are. Alright, well, now that I'm finished with that last ramble, that's going to be the end of our Breakfast Club episode. A film that without a doubt gets the full film effect seal of approval, one down many more to follow. Check out our ever-going collection of previous episodes over at our website, thefilmeffectpodcast.com and please follow us on any or all forms of social media platforms, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, it's the best way to stay up on the up and up and uh, to, of course, interact with us from time to time. All links in the episode notes, ratings and reviews really help us out. It helps get the word out there. So please let us know how we're doing and spread the word. In case you're new to the film effect, we have a show called Furycast every Friday with myself and Corey and various other co-hosts hanging out and talking about the weekend entertainment news along with each of us dishing out personal recommendations for everyone. If you're a fellow physical media advocate, then we have a section for that as well. And yeah, it's just a really fun show featuring a group of friends hanging out and talking film together. It's definitely worth a listen. And Back to School Month continues next week with 1989's Heathers, which if you've never seen before, then do yourself an honest favor and check it out, and then check out the breakdown of the film next Tuesday, Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, Shannon Doherty. It's just a really well-constructed dark comedy from an era that really focused on teenage adolescence. 
it was the days of dare being an actual program instead of a fashion statement you know really excited to talk about that movie so we hope you guys check it out Corey, anything you'd like to share before we sign off you know you guys are awesome so thank you film effectors like i'm honestly always shocked whenever i see our numbers even though by any most podcast standards you know we're a really small podcast i'm still just amazed a lot of times when i see just how many people are listening to us like you know so it's just so awesome and thank you everybody on behalf of Corey and myself thanks for listening to our breakfast club deep dive this has been the film effect podcast we'll talk again next week take care now bye-bye bye film effector see you guys come on come on now.